Morning. So, um, as I said last evening, my intention in, in these talks is to provide some uh, deeper background to Edwin Judge's talks in 2014. Um, from this point onwards, therefore, I'm going to be following Edwin's order, uh, just for ease of relating those two to each other. And so, over the next uh, two weekends, we're going to be thinking, first of all, about the, the business of creation and cosmos, and then secondly, about the issue of the nature of society, and thirdly, about the nature of the human person. So, that was his order, and I'm going to be following uh, that. And, and throughout the whole uh, exercise, what I'm aiming to try to do is to sharpen up our sense of what it means to be on the road to Jerusalem. Um, and in large measure, I'm going to be sharpening that up, I hope, by showing you sections of other roads that are possible through life, as it were, by way of comparison and contrast. Because I think it's always helpful to get a fresh perspective on something if you step back and look at it in relation to other, other things. So that, that's, the, that's the idea. Um, now, I realize that some of you may not have heard Edwin's talks, and so I'm also from time to time going to be summarizing what he said very quickly, which won't do any of you who heard the talks any harm, uh, but it might help those who didn't just get a bit of orientation. Um, so that, that's what I want to begin with doing this morning. Um, I want to begin by uh, talking about what Edwin said about what he called the platonic mirage. Um, the idea, the, the Athens idea, the Greek idea, that the only truth that exists lies in the perfect form or idea of something, and that particular things are not the truth of anything. That's a direct quote from, from Edwin. Particular things, the things that make up our world, actually, the things which are evident to our senses, in the, in the Greek view, in the Platonic view, these are only partial representations of realities that lie beyond sense perception. The beautiful, the rational, the perfect, the static, the unchanging cosmos lies beyond our sensual grasp, and the truth of it is only accessible to the mind. That's the crucial thing about Plato. And to discover things, then, about this truth, with a capital T, uh, we have to go about the business of discovering truth by way of analogy, because there is no direct way of doing it through our senses. We have to proceed rationally by analogy, and this puts definition and deduction as paths to knowledge right up at the top of the tree, okay? And we, we have to work a bit at this nowadays to get a hold of this, because it's not our way of doing stuff, right? Our way of doing stuff typically in the modern world is, is empirical, it's using the senses, and, and we tend, in, in fact, to be skeptical in our culture about things that the senses cannot grasp, so it's exactly the opposite way around. So we have to do a bit of work here 
imaginatively to get back into the, the mindset. So, uh, as Edwin pointed out, one of the consequences of this is that modern science was never going to arise in Athens. Just impossible, right? It could not happen, and it did not happen, because although the Greeks made limited use of empirical knowledge in some areas of life, with regard to history, for example, uh, empirical method would have been important, but on the whole, the Greeks rejected the empirical method when it came to knowledge of the natural world. And Edwin noted the example of the philosopher Galen, who is rather famous for early medical work, and he said that even Galen, in an area where we would take for granted that empiricism was the way to go, right, with with medical inquiry, that Galen flirted with the empirical method, but ultimately rejected it because it was not logical, right? So that was an example that Edwin used. For the ancient Greeks, sense experience supplied the illustration, but not the evidence of the conclusions of science. Michael Foster, in a very important essay from 1934, a long time ago, not well known now, but at the time this essay appeared in the journal Mind, which is a pretty serious journal, um, and he wrote a, a very important essay on the Christian doctrine of creation and the rise of modern natural science. And uh, very much in line with what Edwin was saying, uh, he said uh, this, that sense experience back in that ancient Greek environment helped the philosopher to grasp by an act of intuitive reason an understanding of something that was not itself sensible, which in this context means accessible to the senses, at all. And he goes on to say that Plato and Aristotle differed on this point only in estimating differently the importance to be assigned to what is sensible as illustration. Okay, so that's the basic, that's the basic thrust of Edwin's comments. And the consequence of this is that what nature must be like as conceived rationally and then by deduction from rational principles using analogy, that's what the main thing is, and what remains is the observation of examples of that, right? So you can see examples of it once you've worked out what it is, as it were. You don't get to it by going through examples and then up the chain. So for example, just to put some flesh around this, it might be easier to grasp it if I give a couple of examples. For example, In the Greek view of natural science, the planets must travel in circular orbits. You don't go and look and see, as it were, if you would have been capable of doing it. The planets must travel in circular orbits. Why? Because they are heavenly, immortal bodies, and the circle is the perfect figure. You see the point? So you know already this must be true. And then you look for illustrations that it is, in fact, that demonstrate somehow the truth of it. Uh, So heavenly physics, you know already how heavenly physics works. If you then turn your attention to the earth, and this is uh, Edwin's famous example, which is one of Aristotle's examples, 
and you ask yourself, what is the purpose of male testicles, as, as one does from time to time, uh, well, you might think the way to find that out is to observe, as it were, and to move through empirical inquiry. But Aristotle's move was actually to ask the question, the question of analogy, what do they look like elsewhere in creation, right? And uh, his rather memorable answer is that they resemble the weights hanging down from looms, and the purpose of those weights, those loom weights, was to keep everything in perfect tension so that your weaving didn't get messed up. And he said, therefore, the purpose of male testicles must be something similar to that. And really, they're designed to keep the male body in perfect tension and functioning properly. Right? Now, we wouldn't approach the matter in that way, but, but that's how Aristotle uh, did and the very last thing a Greek philosopher would think of doing was to pursue empirical inquiry in order to discover what these biological entities are for, right? That's just not the way uh, they would have done it. So, in Athens, there's a cosmos. It possesses the character that I have just described. But in Jerusalem, by contrast, there is not a cosmos although I'll call it that from time to time just because of carelessness. Uh, but really, there's a creation, which is a different thing from a cosmos. Uh, in biblical thinking in Jerusalem, the world is a creation. It's created by God, who is a person. It has a beginning, a developing middle, and an end. It's a dynamic, moving entity it is not eternal, it is not static, it is not unchanging. Creation is on a journey somewhere, it is unfolding, and we grasp it through our senses. In biblical thinking, I mean, you may have been struck by this, and I hope you'll be struck by it now if you weren't before, the number of times it is made clear in Scripture that, in fact, you do discover things by way of the senses, by touching and seeing and, and being invited into that, into that inquiry, as it were. Come and see. Test this out. Look and see. Uh, think of all those gospel stories about the importance of people having seen and touched and been there and so on. Uh, uh, so sense experience is fundamentally reliable in Jerusalem, whereas in Athens it's fundamentally unreliable. And notions of testing, of learning by way of seeing and touching and observing and so on, all of that is very much in the frame. And uh, Edwin pointed out, and I'm going to develop this point, that this is really why Jerusalem does lead in the end to modern science in the 17th century, from which time onwards, Edwin pointed out, we do not recognize anything as knowledge that is not empirically and historically based. He's he means by we culturally, we, that's our general approach, as it were, to the point of skepticism about anything that cannot be verified in that way. So it's an utter, an utter shift of perspective and, and method and way of being. And ultimately, therefore, because of what I said last night, it leads to a different way of, of, of approaching life, politics, ethics, and everything else as well. So it's not just modern science. But, uh, so that's, that's so far to this point, that's all Edwin judged, by the way. That's not me. I just, I just embellished a bit and gave some examples. What I want to do now 
is to spend the first part of this first talk briefly underlining the distinctiveness of Jerusalem. So I'm going to be taking us a bit deeper on that, not just in respect of Athens, but but more broadly, as I said last evening I would be doing. Um, And then the second part of this morning's first talk, I want to address the obvious question arising from what I've just said, and that is, if this was already Jerusalem's view, why is it that modern science didn't arise till the 17th century? I mean, that's a pretty good question, right? Um, Why is it that everything took so long, as it were? I said last evening that if you wanted to be provocative, you could say that Moses invented modernity, but modernity didn't happen until the 17th century, so why? What's about the meantime? So, those are the two parts of this morning's first talk. Let's get on with the first one then. Uh, the distinctiveness of the Jerusalem view. So let's begin with this question about the eternality, the eternalness or not of creation. This is one of the most obvious distinctives of the Jerusalem view, and the story begins by addressing it, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right there. That's a radically countercultural statement with respect to the ancient Near East and with respect to Athens. In the beginning, God created all the reality that makes up the cosmos, not only the earth, but also the heavens. This belief that the world is not eternal but has a beginning then becomes one of the fundamental beliefs for each of the three major religions that take biblical literature as being really important, by which I mean Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So these are, all these religions have their roots in the same mosaic tradition in various ways. And for all of those, unsurprisingly, the idea of creation having a beginning, being a creation, is really crucially important. And of course, it's one of these things that appears to be self-evident to us. Those of us who have grown up in Western culture, uh, this is, almost without realizing it, why it would be, this is our default starting point. Yes, of course, we all know about the Big Bang, and it, you know, we have a beginning, of course we do. But of course, it's not self-evident to many other people around the world now, and it has not been self-evident to many people throughout history, and it's very easy to illustrate that briefly by mentioning Hinduism, for example, in which what is ultimately real is eternal and all-embracing. It's the great principle of Brahman, the unchanging ground of being, the impersonal unchanging ground of being, incidentally, that's rather important. Everything in the cosmos, in this worldview, in that worldview, evolving from this original unified entity by a mechanistic process, so the one becomes the many. That's language they'll be using quite a bit as we go through. So in the end, in Hinduism, it is an illusion that we creatures living in the cosmos are many. Actually, we're all just aspects of the one, and salvation, if you like, exists or consists in recognizing the truth of the matter, 
that even our personhood is an illusion at the end of the day. It's not real in that sense. Um, we have to overcome these illusions to escape the wheel of existence. Uh, so it's not just Aristotle in the West who thought the cosmos was eternal. It's also an Eastern. It's a fundamentally Eastern idea, in fact. So that's point number one. Number two, just to focus in on the created by a person bit of the equation. So the world has a beginning, but crucially, this beginning is initiated in the Bible in personal terms. So this notion of a personal creator, once again embraced by Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, but once again very different from what we find elsewhere historically and at the present time. So if you think about the West, you can think of somebody like Plato, who in the Republic posits the form of the good, which is the final cause of everything that we do. So ultimate reality is the form of the good, the highest idea of the good, the beautiful, and the true, but it is impersonal, right? So ultimate reality is impersonal. In Buddhism, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, teaches his followers that the ultimate that they should seek is not a god, but simply truth, dharma. And again, that's not a person. It's a principle, right? It's a, it's a principle that penetrates everywhere, is operative in everything, and in, in these various other ways of looking at the world, the, the notion that ultimate reality is personal is absolutely not what's at the core of the whole thing. And of course, this leads on then to an obvious problem, because if ultimate reality is impersonal and we are personal, we have a problem, right? So these are not going to be, as it were, life-affirming philosophies in, in that sense, right? because our personhood becomes a problem we have to overcome, actually, in these various ways of, of thinking. Thirdly, in Jerusalem, in, in Scripture, the cosmos, creation, possesses order. Uh, it possesses order because a personal creator orders it. And the order is what allows life to flourish. Planets do not need to possess this kind of order, and in fact, no other planet in our solar system possesses this kind of order. It's quite possible that no other planet anywhere in the universe possesses this kind of order. We certainly don't know of any. The only one we know possesses this kind of order is our own, and this is the only place in the universe where life is known to exist. And Genesis understands this order to derive from the personal creator, pictures it as taking place in six days, wherein the problem of formlessness is solved by giving the world form, and the problem of emptiness is solved by filling all the spheres of existence with creatures, and you get this wonderful picture of a world that is good. That's the recurring Thing that's said about it in Genesis 1. God saw that it was good, and in the end, he saw that it was very good. 
right? So a very affirmative idea of the goodness of the material, physical, created order. None of this, says Genesis, none of this arises by chance. None of it arises through impersonal forces, uh, as would be true of many other religious traditions. Uh, The cosmos is not to be thought of, for example, in terms of randomly colliding atoms, which was the Epicurean idea of the cosmos, a very pre-modern, modern idea, right? It's all just a matter of fortuitous atom collision. Well, says Genesis, uh, no, not at all. This is all the product of a mind. It's all the product of a will, of a person. And that's a radical idea. We, do, we don't see it as radical very often in the West because we've lived with this so long we're accustomed to these ideas. But in the whole context, as you step back, you see it's a very unusual way of thinking about the world. Okay, next heading, not on the screen. The cosmos is not divine in Jerusalem. Um, The creation is not only ordered by God in biblical thinking, it is also separate from God. This is a rather important point. I, I don't mean by this that God is not present in creation and cannot be encountered in creation. Of course, uh, the Bible does suggest that that is true. What I mean is that in biblical thinking, God and creation are not the same thing. They're separate beings, if I can put it that way. Creation is not part of God. God is not creation, as it would be in pantheism, for example. So creation is not identified with God in any way. One of the ways that Genesis 1 communicates that is by talking about God speaking creation into being, which is a metaphor, if you think about it, of distance, right? God speaks and over here creation happens. It's a way of of emphasizing transcendence, of emphasizing difference and separateness. Now, that's a very different way of thinking about the world to many other religions and philosophies. Uh, In much of the religious philosophy of the world, The world emerges from the one and becomes the many. Um, If you think about cell division, you would get the basic idea here, right? So you begin with the one, it becomes the two and the four and so on. And that's really the, the governing metaphor for how creation comes into, how the cosmos comes into being in much Eastern philosophy and in ancient Near Eastern philosophy too. And this is why, of course, the gods are bound up with natural forces and it's all inside the system in the ancient Near East, right? So you don't get notions of God creating in the ancient world. The gods themselves are part of the evolving process. And the gods are really high-level bureaucrats in this way of thinking. They're not creators of something else. They're simply administrators of a system they themselves are already bound up in. So the one becomes the many, and there's utter continuity between the gods and creation. But in Genesis, of course, there is no such continuity. In biblical thinking, the creator has no point of origin in the world. The world does have a point of origin but it doesn't originate from within God, if I can put it that way. 
God creates. And so in biblical thinking, the cosmic phenomena are not divine. I mentioned this last night, but just to underline it, if you read Genesis 1, you will discover that apart from the creation of human beings, the thing that gets most attention are the sun and the moon. Have you ever noticed that? The most words are used next to the creation of human beings of the sun and the moon and what they really are, namely lights in the sky, not gods. And it's obvious if you're writing a cosmology in that ancient context, you have to deal immediately with the sun and the moon because they are the two most important gods in the ancient Near Eastern pantheons, right? So you reposition them, as it were, and they become simply uh, lights. Likewise, uh, storms in biblical thinking are simply storms. They're not manifestations of the storm god. Um, One of the illustrations of that would be the famous Elijah story, do you remember, where he's in the cave, he's rather depressed, he's at a bad time, and he hears the storm blowing outside, you remember, and we're told very explicitly God was not in the fire, he was not in the earthquake, etc., etc. And this is a a very deliberate way of, of saying this is not like that other religions, religious stuff you know about, right? We're not talking about a storm god showing up here in all of these natural phenomena. So, uh, the cosmos is not divine, very distinctive and unique. But, on the other hand, in biblical thinking, the cosmos is sacred. So, the non-divinity of stuff doesn't mean that we are to have a casual, pragmatic idea of creation, as if creation were simply a series of objects put there so that we can manipulate them for our own purposes. So there's no idea that just because we don't have divinity in the cosmos, we ought not to have respect for the cosmos. In fact, uh, many of you will know because of other speakers who have spoken at Gospel Conversations that the leading metaphor for creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is the temple. Creation is a temple made by God to uh, reflect the truth of the cosmos, as it were. So creation itself reflects the truth about God. The heavens declare the glory of God and so on. Uh, We ourselves are described as images, image bearers placed in creation uh, in order to Uh, look after it, which is directly taking that notion of the temple with the images in it that we saw last evening. And so creation in uh, Genesis and elsewhere is a temple cosmos. It is sacred space. It is where God chooses to dwell with us. It's not divine, but it's really important. It's really important that we treat it correctly. And all of this adds up, finally, to the notion that the cosmos creation is good. Uh, God is transcendent over it, but it itself is good. It is sacred. And therefore, in Scripture, the created world is never regarded as a problem to be overcome. It is good. There are problems that arise within it, for sure, 
and we'll come back to those later this morning. So there are problems in the world of a local kind that have to be overcome, but creation itself is not a problem to be overcome. And that view stands in very stark contrast to much Eastern thought and much ancient Near Eastern thought. It stands against the idea that physical reality, for one reason or another, is a problem. Um, So if you think again about the religious philosophy of the East and you think about Buddhism, for example, in Buddhism... The world is itself an obstacle that we must overcome to attain a greater good that we ought to be striving for, right? So we overcome the world on the way to something better. Reality, ultimate reality, lies elsewhere, and uh, we have to overcome various illusions about it in order to attain that escape from it. Uh, Biblical faith has often been associated likewise with a kind of escapist view um, on on these matters. But it seems to me to be quite a mistake, no matter what Christians may have believed here and there, or even large numbers of them historically, I don't believe for a moment that biblical texts encourage us to a negative or suspicious attitude toward the material world. The world as created by God in its physicality is good. It is not a mistake, uh, as it is in, in much Greek philosophy, where a lower God gets away with creating it without the higher God knowing in some versions of that story. The world is not a mistake or a problem in the sense of being a trap, where we are stuck, a prison of the soul, as for Plato, where we, have to, we don't really belong here and we need to get back to the real world that somewhere exists elsewhere. It does not lack something, this world, in biblical terms. It does not lack something because we experience it in personal terms. Our senses are not problematic, etc., etc., etc. In biblical faith, the world is a wonderful place, created so as to be exactly the right place for us to live at the present time, a good and a beautiful place for the flourishing of creatures. And in biblical faith, the many do not obscure the one. In Eastern philosophy, the many obscure the one, and you have to strip them away to get at the one. But when Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, you see the difference there? They don't obscure it, they proclaim it. They, they reveal it. They're directly related to it. Um, and so in biblical faith, although our destiny is more than this, ultimately, in the first instance, it's not less than living in this good physical world, right? And this helps to explain, of course, ultimately, why the doctrine of the resurrection of the body becomes such a core Christian doctrine, a doctrine that was incomprehensible to the Greeks and which the book of Acts tells us caused much mirth when proclaimed to the Greeks because a Greek would say, why on earth would you want a body in the afterlife for gosh sakes? And the Christians said, well, no, actually, this physicality thing is not a temporary thing or an accident. Physicality lies right at the heart of the whole enterprise. And so there's a resurrection of the body 
And this was a, a point of complete incomprehension to the Greeks. You, you couldn't remain a Greek, really, in that sense and become a Christian. And this became a, a huge problem for those Christians educated in the Greek curriculum as we go through the Christian centuries, because the level of commitment they had to notions of the resurrection of the body was, shall we say, mixed, uh, to the extent that they were really prepared to leave behind ideas that weren't really consistent with this idea. We'll get back to that in a second. So, uh, all of that to say then that we have in Jerusalem a world-affirming perspective. And I think it's extraordinarily important for us to grasp this, given that uh, Christian faith itself has not always grasped this point sufficiently clearly and sufficiently robustly. So, although I've used the word cosmos loosely in what I've just been saying, the upshot of all of this is that in Jerusalem we do not live in a cosmos at all. We live in and are part of a creation. It's not eternal. It's not static. It's not unchanging. It's on a journey to a destination. It is unfolding in that direction. It is fundamentally good and beautiful, although we'll get to other aspects, obviously, of it later on this morning. It is the very place for us to live, and our senses and so on uh, give us reliable access to it, although not complete in all senses access, but, but certainly reliable, adequate access. And in none of the cultures dominated by non-Jerusalem alternatives, in none of the cultures, not just Athens, uh, in none of those other cultures did modern science arise for reasons that must now be obvious. It's not an accident. It's not an accident of history <clears throat> that modern science eventually arose in a world dominated by these Jerusalem ideas and nowhere else. Um, in fact, modern science, as it turns out, arose largely out of a Protestant Christian culture specifically for reasons which we'll now get on to explore. So now we're into the, the second briefer part of the talk, which is, if what I've just said is a true description of reality a true description of Jerusalem's worldview vis-a-vis all sorts of other worldviews through time. Why is it then that modern science actually took such a long time to arise? And I think the right answer to this question is the problem of the Athens-Jerusalem synthesis. Another shorthand for you. The Athens-Jerusalem Synthesis. What I mean by that is that in the early centuries in which the church was founded and was finding its way, its main dialogue partner inevitably was Greek philosophy and culture, right? It's obvious. You're, the church is born into Greco-Roman reality. And, uh, oh, there we go. Excuse me. This will take some time. Just ignore it if you can. Uh, we'll get, I won't even try and fix this probably till the break, actually. It will just be too distracting. So just let that run. Uh, inevitably, so you have your Christian faith. You have those early disciples. They're enthusiastically sharing the gospel with their contemporaries. Who are these contemporaries? Well, they're largely Hellenized people. Uh, many of the Jews are deeply Hellenized. 
and the rest of the world is Greek, from India all the way to Greece. It's Greek by this point. Greek language, Greek culture dominates the entire ancient world. So, of course, if you're talking to your neighbors, you're needing to take account of where they're coming from and build bridges and find points of contact. Perfectly natural, nothing wrong with that. The problem is, of course, that if you build bridges, you can expect things to try and come back the other way. A bridge is a two-way thing. And so the problem that begins to arise is, can the early church really hold on to its fundamental identity clearly, or is it going to be compromised in this dialogue, in this uh, conversation? Is it possible that the purity and the clarity of the gospel message gets diminished, gets to some extent uh, corrupted? And I think one of the main problems actually at the heart of the whole thing is that if you're going to put Jerusalem and Athens together, rather than having one critiquing as well as somewhat affirming the other, if you're going to put them together, how are you going to do that? How are you going to bring biblical faith largely based at the moment of the originating moment of the church on the Old Testament, of course, right? Those are the scriptures that the church inherits from Jesus and, and, and is using as the other, the apostolic writings are, are only getting going at the moment. <clears throat> How do you bring these things together? Well, the Greeks already had a way of absorbing into their culture awkward traditional authoritative texts. They already knew how to do this, and their way of doing it was to read all of that ancient literature allegorically. So that's how you solve the problem. Um, the background here, briefly, is Homer. Uh, Homer, hugely important in Greek culture. Simon Goldhill puts it this way in regard to Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. He says this, his, Homer's, was the text first learnt and most studied at all levels of Greek education, and any educated Athenian could be expected to have a knowledge of it. Homer was also a prime source of authority for knowledge, behavior, and ethics. The Homeric texts were essential not only to the actual process of teaching and to the festival institutions of Athens, but also to the makeup of Athenian social attitudes and understanding, end quote. You get the point. Homer is as close to Scripture as the Greeks got. Right? So you have the Greeks with their Scripture. To be a Greek is to be Homeric. Right? The identity of what it means to be a Greek person is to be that kind of person. Homer is hugely important. The problem is, when you begin to hit the 6th and 5th centuries and the rise of the pre-Socratic philosophers and then Plato and all those guys, you have a problem. Because people begin to raise questions about whether Homer's gods are really quite respectable people after all, whether they're admirable, whether you should imitate them. Are these texts actually helpful for the building of a just and a good society? So Homer comes into question. To such an extent that Plato, in his Republic, proposes that in the ideal Republic, 
you would simply not allow people to read Homer. That was his solution, rather impractical solution, but Plato in some ways was a rather impractical fellow. Um, So that wasn't actually what happened. What happened was people began to say, well, let's just read Homer in a different way. Reading Homer literally causes a problem. So let us suppose that actually what Homer is about is something else entirely. He's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking allegorically. Maybe when he talks about the gods fighting with each other, for example, he's talking about internal struggles of the soul with itself. Right? This is the kind of move that gets made. So allegory becomes the favored way of handling an authoritative traditional text that has now become somewhat embarrassing. That's a really important idea because you can immediately see how Greeks faced with the Christian gospel and faced with the Old Testament in particular, which was utterly alien to them in so many, many ways, even as they received some of that truth, their instinct was going to be to solve the problem by reading allegorically, right? And if you read allegorically, you can accommodate the challenging material to the culture. It stops challenging the culture, actually. That's the whole point of it, actually, is to stop it challenging the culture. So you see this move with regard to Scripture already among Hellenized Jews in the late centuries B.C. and the first century A.D., people like Philo of Alexandria... Uh, He is faced with this very problem. How do I explain my Jewish scriptures to my sophisticated Greek friends? I know we'll read it allegorically. And we'll try to show that actually Moses was a Greek philosopher before you guys got going. That was the, the, the way of, as it were, selling and explaining this unusual, strange, Jewish way of living in a largely Hellenized culture. So Philo of Alexandria was already doing this. And what happened in the subsequent centuries, in Alexandria in particular, was that people like Clement and Origen picked up that idea, developed it big time, and hugely influenced the rest of the early Christian tradition in doing so. And this persisted all the way through the Middle Ages, and you can immediately see what the outcome of that is going to be. The outcome is going to be that the radical nature of this Christian message, this biblical Jerusalem message, the radical edge of it is going to be heavily blunted. And this is why, even though there is a church in in the Middle Ages that now has enormous reach culturally, that Aristotle is actually the authority when it comes to natural science, not Scripture. That's just the reality of the thing. If you wanted to know about how to approach the natural world, you went to Aristotle, you didn't go to Genesis. Or you went to Genesis, but by way of Aristotle. That would be a bit more accurate. Uh, So, you get people like Roger Bacon in the 13th century, a Franciscan English monk, who is already commenting 
on the negative effects of this, complaining to the Pope about the quality of Christian education, about the ignorance that people have of, uh, 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 of the natural world. He's an, an early empirical scientist, but Roger Bacon in his own time is a very unusual person. He's asking questions that others are not asking, because in a world dominated by Plato and then by Aristotle, all sorts of questions simply are not going to arise. Or if they arise, they will immediately be pulled back into the traditional way of handling these problems. And so you will never learn anything new, and the whole purpose actually is not to learn anything new. You may remember, some of you will know the famous stories that Galileo tells of his attempts later on to get some of his contemporaries to look through a telescope to see what he had seen, and the response he all too often got from very sophisticated people, not, not idiots, you know, really clever people, the response was, I don't need to look through your telescope, I already know what's there, and the evidence of my eyes is sense evidence and doesn't count. It's not dumb. It's, it's not smart either in a way, but you see to me, within the confines of that worldview, there's nothing irrational about that actually. And it shows you the extent to which the Greek approach to the natural sciences was the dominant approach right through to the Reformation, in fact, the Renaissance and the Reformation. Um, and we could get into Plato and all of this and explain exactly why and how this worked out, but uh, I'm very happy to answer questions on that as we go. But the short version of the story is this, that it's only as the authority of Aristotle begins to get questioned in the Renaissance and in the Reformation, it's really only in the face of this back to the Bible let's get rid of tradition, let's go back and actually read what Scripture has to say. It's only as that kind of Renaissance Reformation axis gets going and gets traction in society that you can possibly get a different approach to the natural world arising. And uh, one of the things, if you read the Reformers uh, at all, you will not be reading them too long before you'll come across a sarcastic, cynical, critical comment about Aristotle. Luther hated Aristotle with a passion, for example. Uh, he, he just thought that Aristotle was a big part of the problem with everything, actually, that was wrong with the church of his day. That was Luther's uh, perspective. Um, so Michael Foster, in discussing this very problem that, that we're now just looking at, uh, he says this, the medieval philosopher had, of course, believed the Christian doctrine that nature is created, but the belief had been efficacious only in his theology. In his science of nature, he had continued to seek for final causes, to define essences, and to deduce properties. In a word, he had continued to employ the methods of Aristotelian science, entirely oblivious of the fact that Aristotle's science was based upon the presupposition that nature was not created. You see? It was just a complete... We talked about confusion last night, right? About our difficulty of being consistent. So this is a great example. Here you have a philosophy that's premised on a, a view of the world that's not the one you say you believe, 
but you're dichotomous. In your theology, you've got a hold of this, but in your science, you're still behaving in this other way. And Michael Foster says that's why it took such a long time, actually, for these things to, to come out. Uh, so this is what he, he says. The modern investigators of nature were the first to take seriously in their science the Christian doctrine that nature is created. And the main difference is between the methods of the ancients and the methods of modern natural science may be reduced to this, that these are, the modern ones, and these are not, the older ones, methods proper to the investigation of nature. You see the, the crucial shift there. So there's no question that, that Luther and, and all those guys played an enormous part in all of this. Uh, here, here's just one example of uh, Luther. Very direct, of course. He's a very blunt guy. Nothing can be learned from Aristotle's writings, either of the things of nature or of the things of the spirit. Didn't mess about Luther. And this became very, uh, very important in later Protestant thinking. In the next generation, the 17th century, you have Thomas Culpepper, a uh, uh, rather important early uh, scientist on, on the side of medicine and so on, uh, talking about the dethronement, the, the much-to-be-desired dethronement of Aristotle as, quote, the Pope in philosophy along with the other Pope. Religious Reformation, but it's actually more than the Religious Reformation. It's a philosophical uh, Reformation as well. And then, of course, the rise of modern science uh, to a position of dominance was very much tied up with the Reformation because, by and large, it was only in Reformation countries that science was promoted and endorsed and permitted, in fact. So, of course, there's always political dimensions to this. You can have a bright idea, but if you're censored and imprisoned, you're not going to get too far. Um, so, as Reyer Hukyas uh, puts it, he says this, in an age in which religious sanction was necessary for something to become socially acceptable, it made a great difference whether science was distrusted, merely tolerated, or positively encouraged by the prevalent religion. So it wasn't just the originating moments that were important within the Reformation context. It was the very ability of people to pursue scientific inquiry, in fact, in the 17th century. So all of this to say that although uh, Athens is lauded as the real originating point of much that's important about Western culture, I think that is all vastly overstated and largely untrue myself. Uh, in fact, in this instance, and I would say in all the other important ones we're going to be talking about, it is the Jerusalem perspective that's crucial for understanding the modern world. It's not the Athens perspective. The question that soon faced thoughtful Christian people, of course, was how far to integrate all the things now being discovered by scientists back into the Protestant faith that had birthed it. Because the problem was, of course, they had let loose something that nobody really knew where it was going to go, right? That's the problem with empirical inquiry, if it's a problem. You have no way of knowing where it's going to go. And so the Protestant perspective on Christian faith undoubtedly generates all of this. But within a generation, people are saying, well, I'm not sure I like the consequences of this, actually, because it's asking questions back to me about my current 
construal of what Scripture teaches. So what was to be done now with all of the data being unearthed, some of which caused a problem to 16th century perspectives on Christian faith? How far could that be allowed to go? That's another story. We're not telling that story here. In fact, we're still in the middle of that story, you may have noticed, even to this day. What's important at the moment, with this we'll finish and have our coffee break, what's important is only this at the moment, that Jerusalem's view of the cosmos, very different from its ancient counterparts, remains different from its modern counterparts, and did have the impact it had when it had and not earlier, because earlier it was shackled to and rather undermined by an alien worldview. And uh, this, I think, is, is just an historical uh, reality. That is why, even though everything I'm talking about in Scripture, I think, is, is visibly there, and it's visibly there a long time ago, it's only as that is allowed to seep out into the general intellectual culture that you actually get the kind of changes to culture that you might think would be expected if that were the perspective. Okay? So we'll stop there, and we'll take our break, and we'll reconvene in about 10 minutes. I've gone five minutes over. I apologize, but uh, I was distracted for part of the time. So, Okay, so coffee break. So... I've got my computer back, which is great, really helpful, and um, I want to talk now about evil and suffering in Jerusalem. I said really this morning was fairly upbeat, if I can put it that way, in terms of Jerusalem's world-affirming perspective. And that's quite deliberate on my part. I think it's really important in talking about what's wrong with the world that we don't lose sight of what's right with it. I've deliberately organized it this way so that we understand the powerful and important ways in which Jerusalem's idea of the goodness of the material world contradicts, stands in tension with many other worldviews, both ancient and uh, modern. Those worldviews see the, the physical creation as a problem to be overcome in various different ways. Jerusalem does not. But having said that, uh, the biblical literature would, be, would have to be considered naive if that was all that it said about the world. Because it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that the world also contains, and we experience in it, both evil and suffering. Um, and so the very truthfulness of this tradition would be in question, I think, if it had nothing to say about all of that, convincingly, in the context of the overall goodness of things. And so now we want to think about the other part of that equation. God creates in order that creation should flourish. In fact, though creation suffers in various ways, we do too as part of that creation. There's evil in the world as well as good. Evil is bound up with suffering in various ways, although I want to talk about that in just a moment. 
And that reality, too, is one that all serious religions and philosophies have had to grapple with, right? So if you're seeking to explain the world, you need to be able to explain convincingly the question of evil and suffering, right? That's just what you have to do. So you'll find that all of these serious worldviews through time have addressed this uh, question, and certainly the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, both of those have as well, uh, deriving their views in various ways from this mosaic Yahwistic perspective that I've been introducing uh, to you. Uh, within that Yahwistic tradition, we tend to talk about the problem of suffering. That's often how, how the thing is uh, framed. The problem of evil. Why is this a problem? I mean, if you think about it, it could just be a thing. It doesn't have to be a problem. It could just be the way things are. So even to call it a problem already implies a worldview which goes back to my everything's a package deal from from last evening. Um, I mean, I find it rather interesting when people say to me in the same breath, I don't believe in God because of the problem of evil, which doesn't make sense if you actually think about it, because unless you believed in God, why would there be a problem of evil? It would just be a thing, you see? So it's a very interesting thing. So... um, this, is a, this problem of evil is very much tied up with the notion that there is a good God who loves creation and wishes it to flourish, but nevertheless, there is evil and suffering. That's why it's a problem. It seems to contradict the very reality that you began with. Um, and uh, there are various ways of uh, uh, handling this in, in the tradition just skip past this. Woody Allen, rather humorously, puts it this way. How can I believe in God when just last week I got my tongue caught in the roller of an electric typewriter? Well, that's a rather silly, uh, but, but it's a rather interesting thing. I think myself that he is parroting a certain view of this, whereby everything bad that happens is part of the problem of evil, and we're going to talk about that. So, It's not quite as silly or trivial as as it appears, I suggest, actually. Uh, A more serious version of this, though, would be the ancient Christian writer Boethius. If there is a God, why is there evil? And if there is no God, how can there be good? That's a pretty classical Christian formulation of uh, the question. So, I want to talk about how Jerusalem handles these questions And I want to begin by making a distinction that may surprise some of you, but I think it needs to be made because I think Scripture requires that we make it, and I think our own reason and experience also chip in, as it were, to make us make this distinction. I want to make a distinction, as we begin, between two kinds of suffering in the world. The suffering that genuinely does arise from evil and the suffering that does not. Okay? Uh, I think it's very important to make that kind of distinction. By way of getting into this, I want to begin not with an Old Testament passage on this occasion, but with a New Testament uh, passage. The story in Acts chapter uh, 27 and 28 of Paul's journey by sea as a prisoner from Caesarea to Rome. Uh, 
In this story, we read that even at the beginning of this sea journey, it was difficult because we're told there were strong headwinds. Later, a storm arises. The ship takes a violent battering from the storm. Ultimately, Paul and his companions are shipwrecked on Malta, where Paul, putting some brushwood on a fire, is bitten by a snake. So he's not having a good day. There's a lot of suffering in this story, but as you read the story, none of it is attributed to evil. Interestingly, the suffering in this story, if it arises for any reason, it is because of the very poor judgment of the leaders of the sea expedition in the first place, right? They they just made a bad call. They left when they shouldn't have, and they kept on going when they shouldn't have, and You know, stuff happened, and and that's what it is. The storm in this story is simply doing what storms do, and the snake is simply doing what snakes do. Human suffering arises in this story from being in the wrong place at the wrong time, more or less. And interestingly, the Maltese observers of this don't get that point. Very interesting to read the story later. Go back to it. The first assumption they make is that Paul must be a murderer because he escaped from the sea, but he's just been bitten by a snake, and he's not going to live, and he's got his just deserts. That's their first assumption. Paul is a murderer. When he doesn't die, they change their minds and proclaim him to be a god. Right? There's no middle here. It's an either or, right? Either he's a terrible murderer or he's a god. They have two explanations. And they're both wrong, because they're both attributing moral dimensions to the suffering, right? Paul is neither a criminal nor a god. He's simply a human being who from time to time gets caught up in suffering. And the suffering in question in this story appears to be intrinsic to the way the world works. God's good world works in this way. Think of another example which makes a similar point, I think. John chapter 9, Jesus is asked a question about a man who was born blind. Do you remember the story? Rabbi, people ask, who sinned? You see the assumption? It's not did somebody sin, it's only a question of who. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Only two alternatives once again. Both of them involve somebody acting wickedly either the parents or the man. And Jesus replies just prior to healing the man, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Very interesting story. Um, It does not appear from these stories that all suffering arises in the world because of evil. Some of it is just there. At least that's the idea I'm putting before you for your consideration. Now, if you think about our human experience in general, you can also see that this is likely to be true. The suffering that arises from being the victim of torture certainly has evil at its root. But the same cannot be said for the suffering that arises from accidentally placing one's hand too near a naked flame. 
Moral considerations do not come into that. It is in the nature of fire that it burns. Yes? And my hand will inevitably hurt if I place it near the flame. And indeed, it's a jolly good thing that it does. Because if it did not, I would leave it there, perhaps. And serious damage would ensue. In fact, some of you in the medical professions will be aware that there is indeed a rare genetic disorder using the acronym SIPA that results in an inability to feel pain and is enormously problematic to those who, who have, have this illness. Um, the mother of one young girl who suffers from this very disease says, some people would say an inability to feel pain is a good thing, but no, it's not. Pain is there for a reason. It lets your body know something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. I'd give anything for her to feel pain. End quote. Another example. In a world in which there is the law of gravity, which is a jolly good thing, otherwise you'd be floating around this auditorium rather than sitting there. But in a world where there is such a thing as the law of gravity, if I step off a high cliff, I am going to fall a great distance and cause myself suffering and perhaps even death. And that, I suggest, is not the result of evil. It's just the result of living in a world where there is such a thing as the law of gravity. In fact, more than that, the law of gravity is part of what makes the world good and provides us all with the ability to flourish. It's part of the goodness of the world that there is a law of gravity. It's part of what the language of good, I suggest, in Genesis 1 means. And speaking of Genesis 1, have you ever considered the implications, I'm sure you have, of verse 28 of Genesis 1? We are given tasks to do in Genesis 1. Human beings are, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it or the other creatures. Now, those verbs, rule and subdue, they're pretty active verbs, pretty uh, aggressive verbs, actually. These are verbs used elsewhere in the Old Testament of kingship, of military conquest, They're often associated with force. And this implies that in the good world, before evil even gets an entry, there's work to be done. It requires effort. So if your picture of the Garden of Eden is the lounge chair beside the pool with the martini, I suggest that Genesis 1 is not consistent with that picture, right? Uh, God creates a good world, but apparently it is not devoid of challenges and problems that human beings must overcome, ruling and subduing, in order to live a blessed life. And if you then ask, well, what kinds of things are these? It's not hard to imagine what they might be. What do people have to rule and subdue? What did they, back in the ancient world, have to rule and subdue? Well, they had to push back and keep back jungle and forest in order to carve out agricultural land. They had to keep wild animals away from domestic ones. They had to contain rivers and redirect them into irrigation systems, and so on and so forth. It's not hard to multiply examples of what rule and subdue uh, look like. Uh, Bringing up children, you know, pretty hard work. 
right? Just innately so. I, I don't think, I mean, evil comes into it, obviously. But, but even if there's no evil, it's just jolly hard work, right? It requires effort. Ordering these young person's lives as God orders the world. Planting and harvesting crops. That's hard work. Whether or not you have the thistles and thorns of Genesis 3, right? It's just hard work. So when Genesis 3 goes on to talk about the suffering that does arise from evil in the world, I don't believe that it is trying to offer an all-encompassing account of suffering in terms of evil. So what I'm encouraging you to do is to somewhat dissociate those two ideas. Just for a moment, see how we go, okay? I'm suggesting that not everything we call suffering is attributed in Scripture to evil or makes sense if you do that, actually, in the end. Some of the suffering I'm proposing in Jerusalem arises just because God made this kind of world and not some other kind of world, a world of physical limitation, for example, and so on, physical world, a good world. Now, this is really important because many of those who have wrestled with the problem of evil in the Christian tradition have been accustomed to refer to two kinds of evil in doing that. They talk about natural evil, and they talk about moral evil, but they're both evil, right? So natural evil and moral evil. Natural evil would be things like um, earthquakes, for example, natural evil, and moral evil would be things like torture, the example I used uh, earlier on. The assumption being that earthquakes represent as much of a problem for those who believe in a good God as torture does. That's the implication. They're, They're both deeply problematic, apparently, for believing in one sovereign good God. And in the Christian tradition, this can sometimes be taken quite far to the extent that you often get the impression that the world of our experience now is nothing like the world as it was once back then. If you really push this idea, you get two worlds actually, the original creation and our world, and the two are utterly unlike each other. They operate at a fundamental level in utterly different ways, right? That's where some people have gone with this. And uh, this represents what I would think of, I'm suggesting to you, is a rather, it's an overplaying of the fall card in, in Christian thinking. So, having lauded the reformers earlier for some good things they did with Aristotle, let me now give you a couple of examples of some really bad things they did with this notion of the fall. Martin Luther lists among the consequences of the fall useless trees and herbs, thorns and thistles, lice, bedbugs, fleas, and destructive powers of water and fire. John Calvin adds the inclemency of the air, frost, thunders, unseasonable rains, drought, hail, briars, and noxious plants. It almost appears that everything that Luther and Calvin do not much care for in the world is a result of the fall. That that really is how it appears as you read these texts and other ones. Everything they don't like is attributed to evil, basically, on this view. No space at all is allowed 
for suffering that is the inevitable outcome simply of the fact that God has made this world in this way and not another world in a different way. Natural evil is as problematic as moral evil. And I simply doubt that that is correct. I do not think that is a helpful way of thinking about the matter. And one of the reasons that I doubt this paradigm is that various scriptures tell us that the world of our experience now is exactly the same as the experience of those before us at the beginning. So, if you read a psalm like Psalm 147, we're not going to actually read it, just for time, but if you read this psalm, if you read Psalm 104, and remember, these are compositions from later in the story, reflecting on creation as is experienced by the people worshiping, right? These are worship songs for the present. As you read these psalms, you will discover not a hint of the idea that the entrance of evil into the world has visibly affected how creation functions. In fact, creation in biblical thinking is not a past event. Creation is something that's still going on now. God is now still creating. He is the one in this psalm covering the sky with clouds and supplying the earth and so on. There is no disjunction. The world hasn't be, wasn't good one day and then bad the next day. These, these very dichotomized alternatives. It's simply not how Scripture looks at the matter. I think it's an imposition, actually, from outside, from elsewhere. Now, I'm going to leave that idea sitting there just for you to think about. We, you, you're welcome to ask questions about it later, of course. I want to move on now. And, and ask a, a related question, a part of the issue here. If what I've just said is true, then what is Genesis 3 actually about? Because that's the consequent question. What is Genesis 3 all about? Well, it's still about the entrance of evil into the world, for sure. But I don't think it's about the beginning of all suffering in the world. That's the implication of what I'm saying, right? So evil enters the world and greatly complicates it. That, I think, is the biblical perspective. It doesn't squish it, overcome it, make the world utterly different. Evil greatly complicates things in our experience of it. And if you think about the big picture, the package idea, you'll see that actually this must be true because to say something different from that would imply that evil is an equivalent force in the cosmos to God. Right? It would imply that evil has the ability to overcome God, and that plainly cannot be true. It's not how Scripture looks at it. So to give such a big place, as it were, to evil is evidently a kind of category mistake within the Christian story. So, moving on then to Genesis 3. What is Genesis 3 about? The passage opens by facing the reality of evil directly, it introduces us to a creature of God who is surprisingly, it seems, not under God's sovereign control. That's how it appears at the beginning of the story. A creature who is not under human dominion either, by the way. A creature who's above himself, as it were. Apparently already gone bad, this creature. A shadowy creature, not clear what it is. One of the wild animals that God has made, but 
But as the story goes on, it seems to be more than that. A serpent, not a good set of associations with serpents in the ancient world. We could talk about that, but I'm going to leave that hanging there. Serpents don't get a good press in Egypt and places like that. Uh, they have divine associations in other cultures. This serpent doesn't. He's a creature, obviously, right? Because God is God and creation is something different, right? So all of that's consistent. Uh, we don't expect to meet such a creature, really, in this story of this kind, really. We are not surprised because we've read it a million times. But try to imagine you've read Genesis 1 and 2 and then you hit Genesis 3. You're going to be surprised, how does this fit with what I've just been told, right? And what it implies already, of course, is that there's free will in the cosmos. It implies it. It doesn't hit you over the head with it. It just implies it. Because here's the creature who's obviously chosen to go bad, right? And that's exactly what the human beings are now going to be confronted with. How will you use this freedom that you've been given? Obviously, this world involves freedom. It's one of the fundamental features of it. So how are you going to use that freedom? What are you going to do with it? So to put that in a different way, answering Boethius's question, where does evil come from? Evil in the biblical way of thinking arises from something good. It arises from the misuse of, of, of freedom. It's not a thing, as it were, independently of good. It's a distortion of good. It's the absence of good, actually, in many ways. It's not a a thing in itself, it's the absence of something, the absence of good. So, uh, this serpent, we're told, is crafty, and he asks a very crafty question. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Could be viewed as a friendly question to begin with. That's it's a very subtle question. The allusion is back to chapter 2 where we're told the first human beings are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And that's what's crafty about the question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What God actually said was precisely the opposite. And here it says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So the question reframes the reality. That's the nature of temptation. If temptation were that obvious, it wouldn't be temptation, right? The essence of good temptation is the subtlety of the matter. Not that I'm advising you on how to tempt, you understand. I'm just saying that that's the essence of it. The vocabulary of God is about freedom and blessing. The vocabulary of the serpent is about restriction. You see how he's reframed this to make it look like restriction rather than freedom? And so an appropriate answer to this question would be, you are misquoting God, O serpent, go away. That would have been the right response. Uh, of course, that's not the response. Uh, what the woman actually says is, yes, God said, you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Interesting, that's not what God said either. God said nothing about touching. So the woman is now getting into the mindset that maybe it is a prohibition after all. She's moving over to the dark side already in this response. And then the serpent moves beyond subtlety. You will not surely die, which is in direct contradiction now to what God said. And here's the alternative vision. Your eyes will actually be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The human beings accept 
this, uh, this vision, and of course, that's the beginning of the trouble, basically. So, uh, in, in Jerusalem, evil enters into human experience because of the human misuse of the freedom that God has given them to behave as moral beings. It's essentially the grasping of the wisdom of an adult uh, in, a, in a state where they haven't reached yet. I don't believe we should read the Genesis story as having the tree of either tree there as hurdles to trip people up. Sometimes you, people read the story and, you know, the idea of the trees are there just to see, see if. But actually, I don't think that's right. I think that both trees are regarded as capable of being eaten from at the right time. It's the circumstances under which the tree is approached that's the problem here. It's not the reality of it. The consequences of this are no doubt well known to you, but let's just rehearse them very quickly. They eat from the fruit of this tree. They don't enter into this wonderful experience the serpent has given the impression they will. They realize that they're naked. They hide from each other. They hide from God. So a great disruption has entered into their experience. They blame each other. The man blames the woman and God, actually. The woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit. It's a rather pointed little, uh, little bit. The woman shuffles the blame onto the serpent, and the serpent, of course, does not have a leg to stand on. Boom, boom. Um, the first example in history of passing the buck, as somebody has said. So blame, shame, Inward turning, turning away from relationship between God and ourselves and between ourselves and each other. And then there are some curses mentioned which are best thought of simply as consequential statements. Okay, you've made these decisions. Here's what will follow. There's going to be an ongoing battle between the forces of the serpent and human beings all through time. That's going to be going on all the way through. There's going to be disruptions to the way things work relationally, I think. Um, this, is the, uh, this is my translation of Genesis 3. Genesis 3.16 is often translated as if what happened here was a biological change, that, that women prior to the fall experienced no pain in childbirth and afterwards they did. I think that's a great mistake. I don't think the vocabulary talks about childbirth at all. What it's talking about is the painful circumstances now in which children are brought into the world. All these relationships are screwed up. And now life is harder because children are being brought into a dysfunctional world, right? And the man and the woman are at each other's throats. They're involved in a power struggle. Everything is more difficult, including agriculture. But I think the language is about the breakdown of relationships. It's not really about biological or whatever change. I think that's just a, a mistake which actually has caused other problems as you pursue that line through. So, all sorts of problems arise because of this, this way of approaching the thing. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with each other is fractured. Our relationship with creation in general is a mess. 
And, you know, like everything else we're doing, that's not just a description of Genesis 3, it's a description of our lives, it seems to me, as I see it. Good, but marked by dysfunction to some degree or another. I think that's the the view of Genesis 1 through 3. So, just uh, uh, summarizing all of that as I've done then, broken relationships, the human aspiration to be God rather than to be the image bearers of God leads on to significant dysfunction. And in saying all of that, Genesis 3 wants to say at least two general things about evil in the world. Both of these are important to the biblical worldview, and they dispute the version of things given by other worldviews. The first of these things is that in biblical thinking, evil is not an eternally existing reality alongside and equal to God. That was an ancient view, dualism, all right, evil and good, more or less balanced, and that's how the world is, always been, always will be. The best modern analogy is Star Wars, the dark side of the force, the light side of the force. Nobody knows who's going to win, which is why there'll be endless remakes, by the way. It will go on and on and on, because there'll always be another Death Star, right? So it's part of that philosophy. It's dualism. And Scripture says, no, that's not right. Evil has not always been an eternal reality. God made creatures. Creatures went bad. That's where evil comes from. And secondly, the evil is, on the other hand, not created by this one God as an intrinsic aspect of the cosmos. So evil is not a power equivalent to God, but nor was it created by God. It arose out of a departure from the good by creatures. Those are very distinctive things to say vis-a-vis certain other ways of looking at the question of evil. Now, I want to say a bit more about that just to try and get some clarity. And um, I'm going to take a number of other ways of thinking about evil and suffering in other worldviews just to try and help us get distance from what we know so well, to see it as not inevitable or self-evident, and to understand the radical nature, therefore, of Jerusalem's view, right? So I'm just going to take you through a number of other ideas, beginning with the ancient Near East. So we talked about the gods the other night, and uh, you've seen these uh, pictures before um, from last evening. In the ancient Near East, out of which this biblical literature emerges, we have gods, many of them. The power of these gods to do good is limited, and part of the reason for that is that the power of each of these gods is constrained by the other gods. You have many gods, they're battling with each other, that's going to create limitations, right? I mean, also, they're part of a cosmos they didn't create, and that creates limitations as well. So for both those reasons, the ability of the gods to do you good, even if they want to, is limited, right? So the notion of of goodness is a far more constrained thing in the first place. And you find in ancient Near Eastern literature, worshippers hoping that the gods might do them good, but of course, that's very much part of the bargain. 
You have to keep them happy if they're going to do you good. You don't really know what keeps them happy, and so the whole thing is rather uncertain, right? So the notion of whether you will experience the good is a very fraught issue in that kind of animistic polytheism, and we talked a little bit about that last time. There's certainly no idea in the ancient Near East that the gods are committed to human beings, very far from it. So, you don't get ancient Near Eastern gods making covenants with people, for example. Um, they're not interested in doing it, and even if they were, they don't have the power to, to deliver on it. They're not sovereign, so, so how could you depend on that? So, that's the general idea. In that world, then, there are a couple of options for explaining evil and suffering. First of all, evil might just be there in the fabric of things, built into the parameters of the cosmos. The gods did not create those parameters, therefore they can do nothing about evil, right? It's intrinsic, it's more powerful in the end than the gods individually. The problem in that case would be a lack of divine power, so you can't really depend on the gods to do much about it, right? It's just there. That's idea number one. Idea number two, the gods themselves might not be terribly virtuous. And that, in fact, is very much the ancient reality as well. And if you, you probably don't know much about the ancient Near Eastern myths, but many of you will know something perhaps about the Greek myths, and you will remember how much trouble ensues for human beings as a result of the gods fighting among themselves in the Greek myths, right? I don't like Odysseus, bing, we'll just send them to the other end of the Mediterranean for a while. The gods are all fighting and they're vain and they're very self-interested and that's why you can't expect any good from the gods. Either they don't have the power to do it or they don't have the will, they don't have the desire to do it. And so this leads to a rather gloomy, anxiety-ridden outlook in the ancient Near East with regard to evil and suffering. It's an utterly different idea from the Jerusalem idea, and once again, it raises the great question, where on earth does this unique countercultural idea come from out of that environment? It's inexplicable. It's just inexplicable unless you think the biblical story about Moses meeting Yahweh is true. It seems to me it's otherwise inexplicable. Um, let's think about Greece. We've met this fellow a number of times before, uh, Plato. The thinking of Plato on evil and suffering and goodness is quite dualistic. Uh, Plato conceives of a universe in which being coexists eternally with non-being. So it's a dualism that's found widely in Greek philosophy, actually. Being and non-being are the fundamental realities that exist. They are there before the God, the craftsman, the demiurge, as Plato calls him, who is the person responsible for crafting the cosmos. So evil and good, being and non-being already exist. This God, small g, comes along, constructs the cosmos, He's therefore mightily constrained by his working materials, right? 
the stuff is presented to him, and he does his best, is the best that can be said, for the demiurge. He takes the forms, he combines them with matter, he creates the world as best he can, but in all honesty, it's a deeply flawed world that, that really you want to escape from as soon as you possibly can. The best analogy in modern movies, I just like playing with this so you'll get movie references. You may remember Richard Attenborough in Jurassic Park. He does his best to build a good world on the basis of impressive plans, but he can't quite pull it off because of what he's got to work with. That's Plato's demiurge, basically, right there. Limited craftsmen, and then the lesser gods that come along as the demiurge's workmen are no better. They're the ones, by the way, who place individual souls in individual bodies, very much to the detriment of our soul's ability to grasp reality, thereby confronting us with the problem of escaping from it. So you get the package again here. So there are kind of gods, but they're very much ancient Near Eastern kinds of gods in Plato. There are those kinds of, very much like us, but a bit more powerful. Um, constrained by pre-existing reality. Um, and this means, of course, that the Platonic view of the thing is very far away from the Jerusalem view of creation, right? Utterly different again. And you can see, therefore, why it would be a problem to try and combine Platonism with biblical faith. It seems an obvious problem to us in retrospect. It's a pity it wasn't more obvious back in the day, actually. It would have been better had people been a bit more smart about that. Some of them got it. Tertullian got it, I think, to a very large extent. Uh, but people like Origen certainly did not. Let's go right out of our comfort zone into China and think about Confucius and Confucianism. Um, so in the West, we have these dualistic perspectives, people like Plato. But uh, philosophies in the East tend generally to approach the whole thing in a rather different way. And in Confucius's case, he has a very distinctive idea of good and evil. Uh, Confucius is looking backwards. He's a conservative. He's trying to retrieve things from the past as a way of making the present world better. He looks back nostalgically to the Zhu dynasty of the 12th century BC. In that ancient society, heaven is considered to give the righteous Zhu monarch, the king, the mandate to rule. Society is organized hierarchically beneath this king. The supreme deity authorizes the supreme ruler and cosmic order results. If you think, if you're having deja vu, yes, you're right, that is the ancient Near Eastern view, basically, now found in China. The whole Eastern thing is a very large um, phenomenon. It starts in Greece and goes east, basically, and doesn't stop till you hit the Pacific. So this is very much the same kind of worldview, in fact, as the ancient Near East. Confucius's idea is that's the ideal society. We're not in a great place. We've lost a lot of that. Let's go back and retrieve it. Uh, let's go back to the fundamental principles of that period. And he defines what those principles are. The key one is Li, which is respectful ritual. 
doing things the right way, ritualistically speaking, the heart of which is filial piety, the importance of respect for parents and elders and those in authority. And Confucius' idea was that if his contemporaries would perform the proper rituals and ceremonies, they would be transformed into people of humane goodness, right? Um, in fact, the, the, this leads to the notion of the way, the Tao that you've probably uh, heard of in earlier times, a religious path. But Confucius is really not interested in gods and spirits and so on. His is a much more uh, humanistic kind of vision. It's about our own posture, our own way of living. And uh, evil and suffering on this view originate because people turn away from the Tao. And the way of solving the problem of evil and suffering is simply turn back again. It's a very simple matter. There's no idea of endemic evil that somehow constrains us and prevents us from being good and so on. It's very much in your own hands. And particularly, it's the responsibility of the king and the aristocrats to set a good example and thereby the masses will follow along and everything will be fine. So it's self-transformation through education and proper behavior, essentially, is what Confucius uh, is about. So obviously it's, it's similar to the biblical idea in the notion that there is a way that we ought to be living, but the way, the Tao, is not personal, not, it's not a good and transcendent God, it's not something outside creation, it's something within. And the main problem is ignorance, which is characteristic of Eastern religion, actually. If you ask yourself in Eastern religions, what is the main problem human beings have? It's not really sin, as it were, it's simply ignorance. So enlightenment or education is the obvious solution, right? Very different way of looking at things from the Jerusalem perspective. And just to illustrate that point briefly, let's just think about Buddhism, which of course arose in India, so we're further west than China, but Buddhism is now a very major world religion, certainly in China as well. Uh, in the teaching of the Buddha, my whole existence involves suffering associated with the changing conditions of physical life. Suffering arises simply from change, from the impermanence of things. The heart of the problem is my individual failure to grasp that there is no such thing as the permanent self or soul. That's an egotistical illusion. My major problem is that I believe that I am I, essentially. This leads on to selfishness and egoism, and those things cause suffering, cause suffering. The solution is to cease to cling to the self, and if I can manage that, I will attain ultimately nirvana, a blessed state of escape from all of this toil and trouble. I achieve that by following the noble eightfold path, which is designed to help me bring about this transformation. So nirvana is the freedom from suffering which arises when the causes of suffering are obliterated. What's the main cause of suffering? It is illusion, right? It is 
certain beliefs I may hold that are actually not true. My senses, once again, are utterly unreliable in terms of discerning what is true and good. So the main problem is ignorance. The main solution is knowledge or enlightenment. That's true of Hinduism as well. Evil and suffering are simply aspects of the illusory world that I should try to leave behind. Again, I said last evening we were talking about Karen Armstrong and Carl Jaspers and the idea that all religions basically say the same thing. I've just spent 20 minutes on one topic, and you immediately see how ludicrous is the idea that these religions say remotely the same thing about anything, actually. These are all very different alternatives, and they can't all be true at the same time, right? Uh, but they do, inform, they do inform the way life is lived, the way society is constructed, the values, the ethics, the politics of the world in which we live now and not just historically. And what I want to say in closing is simply revisiting Jerusalem, that Jerusalem dissents from all these views. Good and evil in Jerusalem are not simply to do with illusions. They're not simply to do with how things appear to us as if appearances were profoundly deceptive. The real world in Jerusalem is reliably communicated to us through our senses. And in this world, good and evil do in fact exist, objectively speaking, and have to be accounted for. So that's a massive departure from the typical Eastern view. What does good mean? Good refers in Jerusalem to what is like God, the one true personal God. Evil refers to what is not. It's a very simple matter. The, 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 the measuring stick, if you like, of good and evil is the character of the one true God. Good and evil are distinct realities but they're not eternally distinct in Jerusalem. Evil has not always existed alongside God. It is by no means equal to God. Evil arises from within God's creatures, whether human creatures or other ones. Evil arises when creatures turn away from God, turn away from the good, and they go on to bequeath this damaged inheritance to their descendants in various ways because into our dysfunction our children are born and then so on and so forth down the line. And so it's not just a personal matter. We're shaped culturally by these realities as well. In Jerusalem, evil originates in this personal creaturely rebellion against God in the failure of human beings to trust in the goodness of God, but to believe the serpent instead, to be suspicious of God, the human desire to be God is the root of suffering in Jerusalem. And that is unique and utterly distinctive, in fact. Called to cooperate with God as image bearers in ruling creation, we have instead sought to rule each other and have failed entirely to look after creation. That's the biblical diagnosis. I find it a compelling diagnosis as I consider myself and the world around me. It's not just a matter of ignorance, although obviously ignorance comes into it. Uh, 
Much more importantly, in biblical thinking, evil is a matter of will and desire. It's certainly not a problem of cognition, right? It's not just a matter of thinking wrongly, although that is part of it. It's got to do with will and desire. It's a deep-seated reality, and it absolutely will not be defeated simply by education and good habits, although there's nothing wrong with education and good habits. But in biblical thinking, evil is a far more intransigent reality than in Confucianism, say, or for that matter in Islam, which I haven't mentioned much yet, but in Islam as well, it's a simple matter. You're on the wrong path, turn to the right path. And so in that, to that extent, Confucianism and Islam are rather similar, although in most respects they're very, very different. And I want to submit to you that this perspective, this Jerusalem perspective, therefore, is utterly distinctive. Uh, and uh, hopefully, by doing this compare and contrast exercise, something of that distinctiveness has become clearer. Um, and, of course, it's a very important matter for the reasons we talked about last night, because if our analysis of reality is flawed, all sorts of consequences will follow from that. So, which of these perspectives actually is true becomes really, really important, and many consequences follow from our decisions about that question. Okay, I will stop there and uh, hand over to Tony in the first instance. Now, uh, well, it's a lot to absorb, isn't it? It's wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm just still processing it. Uh, and in terms of uh, our agenda, we've got time for questions, which we can either do now or we can do t uh, the questions when we come back after lunch. So it's a bit of... Uh, I want to throw that to you. Would you rather just uh, break now, absorb this a little bit, and then when we come back after lunch, which I said we're bringing forward to about 2 o'clock? Because I often find that as you, you know, absorb things and chat, questions perhaps formulate a bit more clearly, and then we could start off with a question time. Who would prefer doing that? Hands up. Who would like to do after lunch? Who would like to do questions straight away? Okay, well, let's mix it up. Eh? Both then. Okay. We'll, let's do Good. it both. Those who want to ask questions straight away, let's, uh, let's ask some now, and then uh, we, can, we can ask some after lunch. Peter, I'll just hang on a second. We'll give you the microphone. Yeah, um... I agree with you. I just have a question about Paul talks about the ultimate enemy being death. Mm -hmm. What relation has death, I mean, to evil coming into the world, mm -hmm. um, if you like, prior to the, if we looked at it historically, yeah. but prior to the fall, mm -hmm. was there death? And... And, yeah. and what, are we, what is he talking about if there was, I guess? Well, he's talking about death as we experience it now. Fundamentally, that's what he's talking about. And the concept of death in Paul's thought and in the rest of Scripture is multi-layered, and that makes it difficult sometimes to know exactly which kind of death's being spoken about. You can have spiritual death even though you're alive, for example. And then there's bodily death. 
And one of the questions that arises immediately in the Genesis story is, when they're told on that day you will die, what does that mean? Because you will have noticed that on that day they do not, in fact, die. Nor do they respond to that statement, on that day you will die, by saying, what do you mean die? Which is interesting. And um, this implies to me that the natural state of things is in fact to die, and has always been so. And that only if something else intervenes will that not be the ultimate reality. Namely, only if the eating of the tree of life does not happen at some point. Um, So, in answer to your question, I think that what happens actually in Genesis 3 is that death becomes really problematic because of evil in a way that was not true before. And I think it's possible to think that death without evil would simply be an uncomplicated passing from this reality into the next one. Uh, I'm not convinced that Genesis 3 means to say there was no such thing as physical death before there was evil. And indeed, the geological record and the archaeological record would greatly complicate that point of view because clearly there was lots of death before there were even human beings. So it's even more complicated if you transfer this to creation in general. Um, This issue too has been complicated by the Greeks because as a result of Plato's thinking that who we are fundamentally We are immortal souls fundamentally, currently, unfortunately, trapped in physical bodies. So we were originally in the world of the forms. We're now in our physical bodies. Our destiny is to return there. And because of the whole Greek-Christian dialogue, that idea got embedded in some Christian theology, although you don't find that idea in the early church fathers, interestingly enough. It's a later idea. It really arises when Origen and the Alexandrians get going. It's not a feature of Christian thinking prior to that point. On that notion then, death itself becomes a result of the fall, right? So who we are fundamentally is immortal. We lose our immortality in the Christianized version of this, and later we get it back, as it were, in a way. Um, But actually, if you read the New Testament, what I find interesting is that Paul, in talking about immortality, does not say who you really are essentially will come out when Christ comes back again. What he actually says is when Christ comes, you'll be clothed with immortality. The metaphor is of something coming from the outside on top of who we physically, materially are, as it were. Um, So when you remove the Greek components, as I think we should, because there's no hint in Scripture that we were ever innately immortal beings by nature, quite the reverse, I think. Only God is said to be immortal in Scripture. Once you remove that idea, I think it's possible to see that we're dealing with a complicated reality here and that Genesis 3 is not necessarily about physical death as such. And that's my conviction, actually, at the end of the day. So, so if I could just, because uh, I think that's quite a lot in that answer, isn't there? <laughs> and we might absorb that one. But certainly one of the corollaries of what you've 
said, if I were to go to the positive side, is if you actually take the Greek view, um, it diminishes the achievement of Christ and the resurrection. Yes. Significantly. Well, it does. And for a Platonist, it must, it, there's no way you can fit this into a Platonic worldview. And this is why I'm so suspicious of Origen. I mean, there's lots of reasons I'm suspicious of the church father Origen. But one of the reasons is that as you read Origen, although he says he believes in the resurrection of the body, the impression you get at the end of the day is that that is only an intermediate stage on the way somewhere else. Because to a Platonist, the ultimate destiny is to be reabsorbed into the one. It's to your soul to be reunited with where you came from. And bodies have no part in that. So Origen, being so thoroughly Platonic, he finds it very, very hard actually to find a proper place for the resurrection of the body. So the whole notion of Jesus being truly incarnate, truly being resurrected in the body, these are fundamental arguments between the early church and the heretics. And there's a reason why these are the issues that are being discussed. Because to the Greek mind, the notion that God becomes incarnate is impossible. And the notion that the body should be resurrected is absurd. And you're dealing with an utterly different view where the soul being the only really important thing, the body is, the body is a secondary matter, right? Whereas from Genesis onwards, right through to the end of Revelation, in biblical thinking, a human being is a soul and a body. It's not a soul, unfortunately, burdened with a body. The very, to be a creature of God is, in fact, to be an embodied person from a human point of view, right? It's fundamentally important, actually, and it completely affects your understanding of Christ's work in the atonement and everything else. Yeah, I mean, so, I think as a younger evangelical Christian, although nobody said it to me, my understanding of redemption was it got us back to pre-fall. Right. Uh, it just sort of equalised things back to pre-fall. Right. Rather than um, a massive extension beyond, not Genesis 3, but even yeah. Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. Um, well, if you're a Greek then the cosmos is innately perfect to begin with. It cannot be otherwise. It's like a, the circle is the mathematical perfection, right? The cosmos is already perfect. You can't do better than perfect. So where else are we going to go except back to the beginning? So in the Greek view, it's fundamentally cyclical, and it must be. Logically and philosophically, it must be cyclical. The biblical view is not at all cyclical. Revelation doesn't take us back simply to the garden. Revelation takes us onwards into this garden city. It's a, there's that kind of idea that all the accomplishments of humanity are caught up in this new Jerusalem. Um, and, and of course, to bring the cyclical view into our Christian thinking means, among other things, that everything that's true about the end must also be true about the beginning. And so you get people reading out of their eschatology their view of creation, and it completely messes up the ballpark, actually, at the end of the day. It's just not a wise thing to do. Now, I'll be coming back to this in a subsequent talk, because I think we have to, we have to be very careful about this. I don't think we should have in our model 
beginning, middle, back to beginning. I think we should have as our model beginning God-ordained journey to God-ordained end, somewhat messed up by evil, which kind of complicates things. But because God is God, it's not a big deal. And in fact, we're going there anyway, which is a far more, I think, biblical way of conceiving the big picture. Because God gets to be God on that picture, and evil gets to be what it is, which for all of its horribleness actually is still a very subsidiary, marginal entity in the cosmos, really, right? The goodness of God is, and this is amazing, because the ancient Israelites did not live in our comfortable surroundings where we're rather immune to a loss of ordinary human suffering through the ages. They lived in a very difficult world, a world where it was hard to survive, where there were imperial enemies and so on. Think about how much of their discourse is about the goodness of God and the wonderfulness of creation. Think how deep that conviction must have been to sustain that perspective in those circumstances. Um, So, the notion that God is good and God is sovereign and God is all-powerful and this story will have a happy ending because God ordains it so, that's the fundamental set of biblical convictions. And evil, yeah, evil's a problem and it's unpleasant and it can wreak havoc. But only in the meantime and only to a certain extent. Um, So I actually think that the, the Christian story is fundamentally optimistic, actually which is not the impression I got either as a teenager, I have to say. I mean, the version of the Christian story I got was the world is pretty much lost in sin and gloom, and by getting out of bed in the morning, you can probably only make it worse. <laughs> so stay a, a put. Scottish, a Scottish, so, Scottish Presbyterian Calvinist view. And again, nobody told me that, but that was the impression I kind of picked up. And it was a very, very negative view of the world and of my capacity to do good and to change things. At the end of the day, it was a very small view of God and a very unbiblical view of God, I would now say, actually. Um, So putting evil and suffering correctly within the frame of the big story is massively important and has enormous implications, even for how you read individual biblical passages within the whole story. And so. what you've done as well, which I'm, I'm sure you will probably develop, is a very important point that I think what you've done is you've subordinated evil to a more minor play than most people make it because the story involves change, which is turbulent, which is dramatic, yeah. uh, and, and you can't actually put evil uh, uh, across the top of it as the explanation for all the ups and downs in the journey. No, you can't make it a totalizing explanation. And just to say that out loud, it should be obvious you shouldn't, (laughs) right? I mean, evil cannot be a totalizing explanation in a Christian worldview, right? And in fact, I think the whole evil card, the, 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 the fall card is played way too much in many of our articulations of Christian theology. And because it, it refers to everything, in the end it doesn't explain anything in a way. It becomes so overused that you're not even any longer discriminating, as it were, between things that really are evil and things that are just inconvenient. 
for example, right? And, um, and in some versions of, of modern contemporary Christian theology, we, it seems to me that we are almost accidentally back in a polytheistic animistic world because evil spirits and Satan is under every bush and under every tree and everywhere to be seen. And I'm thinking, I thought that was what we were supposed to be reacting against, right? Is evil really a, a, a dualistic Star Wars, dark side of the force kind of thing with that much power in the world? Does Scripture give you the impression that Satan and his legions have that much power in the world? I don't think so. Not globally speaking, yeah, for those who give those powers their allegiance, for those who simply give in and go along, of course, absolutely. But uh, if you think about the book of Job, the interesting thing about the book of Job is that Satan is a player, but he's on a leash, is he not, in that book? A very, very clear leash. Book of Revelation... No contest at the end of the day. The Son of God rides out on his white horse, and the whole thing's over before anything gets going. And Satan's in the lake of fire, and it's done. You know, there's no dwelling on it. It's not as if it's very significant in the end. It's painful and certainly messes our lives up and causes us grief and terrible pain and has caused horrendous things to happen in the world. We shouldn't underestimate the effects of it. But I think when theologically we raise it to the level of God, we are making a profound mistake. That's my main point, I think. So, a couple other questions. Hi, my name's Kath. Um, I have just a couple of clarifications to make um, in terms of the assumptions that are driving what I understand your argument, and I might have misheard you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, The first is the definition of evil and whether whether the traditional account of decay being introduced into the world as a result of our sin um, and that... That seems to be what you're refuting, that, that account, if I got you I right. I think it is greatly overplayed. I can clarify that in a moment, but just keep on, keep on going if you want. So, so one of the, the things I'm thinking about that is, um, is the, the issue here that you're trying to deal with the idea that if creation is subject to bondage as a result of a fall, so that the physical reality um, comes under God's judgment mm-hmm. as well as ourselves, mm-hmm. which is what the traditional idea of childbirth being painful, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the ground being cursed, mm-hmm. um, of Romans 8. Mm-hmm. And I'll just read that verse to you. Mm-hmm. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, for creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of mm-hmm. God. Good. So um, that's something that has informed our understanding of the Genesis story yes. as well. Um, it speaks of bondage and decay. Mm-hmm. 
And it appears to be that creation, the traditional understanding of that verse is that it's, yeah. you know, brought under the curse. Yeah. Um, um, so that it also will be released mm. into that glorious mm-hmm. new creation mm-hmm. on the last day. And that brings us to the subject of whether God's punishment and being subject to physical suffering as mm-hmm. a result of God's punishment, temporal punishment, to call us back to him, mm-hmm. is itself evil. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether that's one of the assumptions right. that can get confused in this debate. Well, my gosh, uh, that is such a great set of questions. And it's asking me to respond at length, and I don't have time to respond at length. I will be coming back to certain aspects of the question you're asking in further sessions. So, for example, the nature of these curses, are they viewed biblically as fates or destinies that cannot be avoided? And I'm going to argue that biblically they're not regarded in that way. Um, That's later today, in fact. I will be talking about that. So, I think there's a, a problem with the way people have read the curses. They've read them in a Greek way as being like fate that cannot be avoided, whereas I think in Scripture they're presented as a path that you might well walk on, but you shouldn't, number one. You don't think it's intrinsic to creation, the bondage and decay that's become a part of physical reality? What Paul is talking about in Romans 8, in my opinion, is the reality that when the image bearers are messed up, creation's inevitably messed up to some extent. And that's why creation waits expectantly for the redemption of the sons of God. Because when they are restored to their capacity to be image bearers, then they will be able to do their job in looking after creation. I don't believe that Scripture teaches that there are intrinsic, ongoing, unavoidable curses laid on physical creation independently of the whole question of governance, ruling, and subduing that human beings are called to. And I'll argue that out later on, so it might be better to leave that component of it till later, and we can certainly come back to it. Um, So I think Romans 8 is itself about relationships, really, essentially. Romans 8 is about creation is suffering because human beings who are called to actually govern it, along with God, are not doing their job because of sin. Um, And you're quite right. People do tend to read Genesis through the lens of Romans 8, which is, I think, unfortunate because I think that the typical view of Romans 8 is not quite accurate enough to do the job. And I think if you read Genesis 3 in the context of the Old Testament, you don't get that impression, which raises further questions about it. And then there's the whole question I raised last evening and mentioned this morning, I think, again, that Scripture generally does not give the impression that creation now is very different from creation back then. The Psalms don't give that impression. Uh, Natural phenomena in the Psalms are regarded as part of the good working of God's world for which we should praise and celebrate. Then we can add to that the scientific realities that, for example, moving tectonic plates are necessary in the world for our world to function as a place where creatures flourish. And given that they move, 
Every so often, they're going to bump up against each other and cause unfortunate consequences. But it's very hard to imagine the world we actually live in, this kind of world, functioning in a different way from that. And unless I had really compelling scriptural evidence to push me in that direction, I'd be disinclined to go that way. So to my mind, this whole question needs to be reframed. And we need to go back to these scriptures and ask the question, have we really rendered these in the best possible way? And I think part of the problem is that in cases, select cases we haven't, in the case of the childbirth thing, the vocabulary simply doesn't imply childbirth at all. And earlier translations like the King James Version don't translate that as involving birth pangs nor does the ancient translation of the Septuagint imply that. They go for a much more generalized language about sorrow and pain being built into the experience of bringing children into the world. So when you have the NIV just putting childbirth there, uh, that's, that's certainly a tradition of interpretation. I don't think it's a justifiable translation, though of the Hebrew. What about curse the ground so that with toil you will um, bring forth the, the fruit of the ground? I promise I'll come back to that this afternoon because I'm going to address the general question of curses this afternoon. So um, it's a very fair question, but I think from an efficiency point of view, it'd be better if I said a bit more and then we can come back to that. Okay? So what I suggest uh, is we've got plenty to think about over lunch, um, and we've got more questions. I, I just want to throw one idea out there. Um, the way I like working with powerful ideas like this, Ian, are to let them absorb and rearrange my mind, which takes a bit of time, and then go back to, uh, to their implications. Um, uh, as I listened to your conversation with Kath and what you said about Romans 8, what struck me is the role of human beings is far more pivotal mm -hmm. uh, than the context in which we live. Mm -hmm. And it is the loss of uh, glory or uh, sin and uh, what that does, of course, is put us on a trajectory to Christ as the ultimate human being. Mm -hmm. Um, so as, as I listened, that's what I was taking away. The real problem is the guardians have lost their power and the relationship with God. And if I can just restate that briefly in a sentence to just try and get clarity in that point. I think that Scripture teaches us that God has chosen to relate to the rest of creation through our mediating influence. As we go, creation goes in general. And that image-bearing, subduing, having dominion stuff is crucial to the whole conversation. I don't think that God is dealing, as it were, independently with creation uh, in these uh, various ways. I think it's all bound up with the set of problems that evil brings to our relationships. That's my basic idea here. Yeah. So, good. yeah. I will deal with anything if somebody asks me a question. Yeah, well, bring it, uh, perhaps when we get, if you're coming back next weekend, I know it's some spare time away, when we get to the subject of human beings and humanness, that would be a great context for that question. I'd be happy to respond to that, for sure. 
Okay, well, it's, uh, uh, what we've done is send out a, uh, uh, an email to everybody that we're starting at 2 o'clock-ish. Um, and uh, so let's uh, aim to do that. But when we come back, I promise you we might open up with a few more questions. Yeah, sure. Good. Thank you. All righty. Well, in case you weren't here this morning, let me just briefly recap. Um, This morning in the second session, we were talking about Jerusalem's views about evil and suffering. Jerusalem claims that God is good. The world that God has made is good, but there is evil in it. And the question is, where does it come from? And in Jerusalem, the answer is the evil originates in God's creatures who turn away from what is good and in the case of human beings inevitably bequeath all sorts of consequences of that to further generations and so on. And the result of this in the end is that evil does produce in the world fairly widespread and rather devastating suffering um, and all of that is rightly attributed uh, to moral evil, for sure. Um, But I was suggesting that neither Scripture nor reason nor experience really ought to lead us to the view that all of what we call suffering is of that character. And indeed, one thing I didn't point out on the way through this morning, which I realized afterwards I ought to have done, we were talking about the... uh, the birth pangs question, you know, in Genesis 3, you may have noticed there that what is said to the woman is that her suffering will increase, not that it will begin, which is interesting because it rather does fit with the kind of proposal I was presenting to you uh, earlier on. What I want to talk about mainly in this final session of, of today is what are we supposed to do about all of that? What is our response to be to uh, evil, uh, to the suffering arising from evil? And for that matter, what is our response to be to the suffering that may not actually arise from evil uh, at all? Um, So it's the issue of response, the nature of the response, the activity or passivity involved in that response. Those are the issues I want to get at. But I want to begin by taking further the question of the curses in Genesis. So I alluded to this earlier on in answer to a question. Uh, This is another big question that we have to get clarity on. Overall, what I'm suggesting to you today actually is that your view of how the question of evil and suffering and the fallenness of things relates to the question of creation and the goodness of things, your overall view of that will massively shape every other aspect of what you think. The big picture, the frame, that provides you with the context in which your reading of all the particular text takes place, right? So obviously, how you frame the big picture is pretty important to everything else. And one of the big framing questions that we haven't quite addressed head on is this idea of the fallenness of things and what we're supposed to make 
of that. Uh, so I would frame this question in the following way. Are the events of Genesis 3 viewed in Scripture as predicting the way that things must now inevitably develop because evil has entered our experience, right? So is this prescriptive? Is it laying down the rules of engagement from this point onwards? Are human beings now fated or destined to live with the consequences of the fall? Are these consequences unalterable now, no matter what we do? Is the only thing we can change our attitude? All right, so this is really a question about the character of those curses in Genesis 3 and how that is understood in the rest of Scripture. And that's the question I really want to answer. Uh, Of course, that question is answered in all sorts of ways in Christian tradition. But in order even to sift which of those are good answers or bad answers, we have to get clarity, first of all, on what Scripture itself uh, seems to suggest. Now, this is a really important question, and it has inevitably shaped the course of Christian history, how people have answered this question. So, there is a view, it's the view that I more or less picked up when I was a teenager at university, uh, and this, this view, very much a Calvinist view in, in my context, although I think it's wider than simply the Calvinist tradition, on this view, the story goes like this. The world has been indelibly marked by the sinfulness and stupidity of our first ancestors, We need to accept what we've inherited from them. To do otherwise would be rebelling against God because God has ordained that the world should be this way now. In these curses, on this view, God has recreated the world, actually, to make it a suitable place for fallen people to live in, right? So it's ordained. And while we should not try to add to the evil and suffering as we await our escape from it, neither should we try to change it much. It would be impious to do so. I think that would be a fair description of quite a significant part of our Christian tradition, and some of you may recognize it, although others of you will be politely internally without moving your head, shaking it nonetheless and thinking, really, I've never come across that, but I can assure you that this is a fairly common kind of view. And it explains a number of things about the history of the Christian church. For example, it explains why so many of my countrymen, so many Scots, back in 1847, opposed this man, James Simpson, when he began to advocate for the use of anesthetics in childbirth. So he was a medical man. He had discovered that if you used chloroform astutely, you could relieve some of the pain that women were experiencing in childbirth. 
And this idea outraged a significant section of the Scottish population. And they said, you can't do that. That is to avoid a God-ordained curse. It's impious. You can't do it. The same kind of approach to Genesis 3 also lies behind a long-commended approach to male-female relations in Western society. On this view, the ruling of men over women that's talked about in Genesis 3 is also God-ordained. It is not a description of how male-female relations often work in the fallen world. It's not merely a description of that reality. It is a prescription as to how things ought, in fact, to work. You see, the same assumption lies behind both of those approaches, right, to life. In both examples, this story goes, we live in a world in which a mistake was once made, and all of us must now pay the ongoing series of penalties. And they're just always with us. They're unchangeable. You ought not to try to change them. To borrow the words of Abraham Derbyfield to his sister Tess, in Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Derbyfields, we live in a blighted world rather than a splendid one. In that story, in Abraham's view, it's not splendid and somewhat blighted. It's blighted and not at all splendid, right? The fall has just ruined everything, and this is the world that we are now fated, destined to live in, okay? So that's, that's the view um, that I want to actually step back from and to raise questions about in line with what I was saying earlier today. I want to suggest that this is not, in fact, what Jerusalem Scripture teaches. I'm a Bible kind of guy, you know, and uh, what I'm trying to get at here is what Scripture really has to say, and I'm absolutely accountable to to, to anyone who can demonstrate otherwise, as, as I should be. But in this case, as in others earlier today, I actually think that aspects of our Christian tradition have gone astray. They've not managed to really capture the, the right balance on some of these questions. Uh, so what I want to argue, in fact, is that Scripture does not view the events of Genesis 3 as having totally and adversely affected the character of creation as good. So that's restating something I said before, right? That God's creation in biblical thinking remains good. It is a place blessed by God. It remains entirely wonderful in nature. We ourselves legitimately celebrate it and praise God in the midst of it. And I cited a couple of Psalms, you remember, 104 and 147, among others, that demonstrate that lesser people in the story are still responding to creation in the same way as it is first described in Genesis 1. The same kinds of categories are being celebrated. Um, 
So this is part of my argument that whereas evil does interfere with the goodness of the world, it doesn't uh, obliterate it, it doesn't remove it. Uh, And as a subset of that argument, I want to argue that the curses in Genesis 3 are not thought of as fates or destinies, as unavoidable realities that we must and should live in. So, for example, Genesis 3 speaks of a breakdown in the human relationship with God, right? And uh, that is regarded as something with ongoing consequences. And yet, in Genesis 4, Abel has a good relationship with God. Enoch and Noah are said to have walked with God, a walk that reminds us of the walking of God in the garden, of course, in the early chapters of Genesis. Cain, who doesn't end well, is clearly presented, though, in the story of Genesis 4 as having a choice. He might well submit to sin, but he ought not to do so, yes? He he ought not to give in and allow sin to master him. There's nothing inevitable about his submission, basically. That's very clear in the story. Even after he submits to sin, and even after he murders his brother Abel, he's still described as living in God's presence and as talking with God. There's still a relationship, right? So, the expulsion of human beings from the garden does not mean in this story that people cannot walk with God. It's not the only option available. Then again, think about the curse on the woman. We mentioned this earlier on. The curse on the woman is increased pain associated with the bringing of children into the world. That's what I think it's about, broadly. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, though, the predominant note in the remainder of the Old Testament, where mothers and children are described, is not pain, but joy, right? So, the actual description of mothers and children, the languages of joy and pain doesn't show up. So, think of Psalm 113, he, God, settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. It's a very optimistic, joyful little verse, right? And there's nothing about pain in there. Think about the curse on the man in Genesis 3. You remember, he is to struggle with the ground until he dies, and then he'll go back to join the ground from which he came. And it's a very gloomy prognostication, right? It's not a, it's not a great view of life, really. The question is, Is it regarded as inevitable that that should be the case in the rest of Scripture? Well, I I don't see that reality. Think of Psalm 128. That psalm promises the person who lives a reverent life before God that his life will be blessed in the following way. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. That's a picture of family bliss, is it not? 
and notice that success in agriculture, economic success, is the foundation of that. So whatever the cursing about the man struggling with the ground till he die, whatever that means, it's not a global destiny or fate, yes, in the rest of Scripture. It's not regarded that way. In fact, already in Genesis chapter 9, you will come across Noah as a man of the soil, a farmer. He is the first in the Bible to plant a vineyard, and it goes jolly well. In fact, you may remember, it goes so well that later on in the story, he doesn't handle himself very well in relation to his success with the vineyard. You may remember, he gets rather drunk and something very bad happens. But the point is, he's a successful farmer who fulfills his father's hope in Genesis 5 with respect to the pain of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. The father hopes that Noah will overcome that impediment, and in the story, he does. He's a successful farmer. And then think about the aspect of Genesis 3, the curse, this power struggle between the man and the woman. You remember in Genesis 3, you have this very accurate existential picture of how relationships often are in the world, where the man wants to dominate the woman, and the woman has a desire for her husband, which is, I believe, a desire for power. It's not sexual desire. It's a, it's a power struggle that's being uh, communicated there. Well, is that kind of relationship in marriage, is that viewed as inevitable in the biblical story? So you read on in the story, and you see relationships that seem to be doing much, much better than that, rather bleak picture, where there's genuine affection and love in the midst of, admittedly, a lot of dysfunction. And then think of the Song of Songs as the great counterpoint to this curse. Um, If you have read the Song of Songs, you will know that is full of garden imagery. The action happens in the midst of a flourishing, fertile creation, and the lovers in the Song of Songs identify with this wider creation. They revel in it as they affirm each other with images drawn from it. There's no darkness. There's no power struggle in the Song of Songs. It's all pretty blissful stuff. It's joyous. There's mutual affirmation. There's a glorying in what is good. And in the Song of Songs, the man and the woman restore in their love what has been fractured in Genesis 3. Now, these are only a few examples, and I could certainly multiply them if we had time. And and the bigger point I want to make here is a fairly well-established principle of good biblical interpretation that we must always try to read the individual passage in the context of the whole thing. So, if we are reading Genesis 3 in the context of the whole of Scripture, and in the first instance in the context of the Old Testament, and we ask ourselves the question, what does the rest of Scripture encourage us to believe about the meaning of Genesis 3? We are bound to come to the answer, it does not regard those curses as fates or destinies that inevitably we must indwell. That is not the view of Scripture. Our biblical authors absolutely know about darkness and 
threats to all of this, uh, all that's good. They know about that. They know that each of us is born into the midst of all of this, and before we're even conscious of making decisions, we are shaped by our parents and society, and so uh, in that sense, we are already embroiled in dysfunction and chaos uh, before we're even making conscious decisions. There's a very powerful sense in the Bible about the baggage that we pass down generation through generation in that respect. That's overtly addressed. Very realistic sense of the impact of evil in the present, structurally, not just individually, the way in which large structures can impinge upon us and oppress us. Uh, A very clear idea that none of us is a passive recipient of this, but we are all actively engaging to some extent in evil and that this in many ways does mark our whole life. So all of that is true, and yet what I want to suggest to you is that biblical faith does not regard it as inevitable that we must go on living in these ways, and in fact, the opposite is the case. The people of God are called not to live in those ways, but to live in a different way in God's kingdom. The people of God, all human beings actually, are summoned to turn back to the Creator, to reestablish a right relationship with the Creator, to get right with our fellow human beings, to engage once again in caring for creation. There is no fatalism in the biblical perspective. There's a pronounced opposition to fatalism. And that's a necessary starting point because you will understand that the question, how should I respond to evil and suffering, depends a lot on your decisions about what I've just been saying. You see what I mean? I mean, if it's impious to try and change the world, well, don't do it. Yes, obviously. Um, You remember we talked about the Hindu caste system and why it hasn't changed for 2,000 years. It's fundamentally because it's impious to change it, right? Perfectly logical that that would be the case. But if, on the other hand, you think that Genesis 3 is charting a path that it's all too possible to walk upon, and many people do, and yet not inevitable, and you ought to repent and not do it, if that's the biblical message then that implies a different series of responses to evil and suffering, yes? So we're at one of these junctures in the road with regard to the big picture. And I profoundly believe that much of what I was told about this when I was younger is simply not biblical. It's simply not the Jerusalem view. So I'm going to put that out there as the foundation connected to what I was saying this morning, And I want to now get in much more step by step to the, what am I supposed to do then in this world that's good but marked by evil and suffering? What's the Jerusalem idea of the good life, the righteous life in response to all of this? So we begin then, I want to begin by saying, that the path that Jerusalem charts for us is, first of all, the path of resistance. 
What are we to do about evil and suffering? I am to resist evil, cutting off at its root the tree of suffering that grows from it. I think that's the first, the foremost biblical answer to the question. I am not to capitulate to evil. I am not to accept the inevitability of it. I'm not to despair. I am to steadfastly pursue what is right. That's a fundamental biblical injunction. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I set you before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now choose life. You see, two ways. One of them is really bad and does lead to death and destruction. But there is this other way. Now, for goodness sake, people, be smart and choose life says Deuteronomy 30, right? The prophet Micah, it's not, basically I can summarize this text by saying it's not rocket science. This is what Micah is saying. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's very simple. It's not complicated. That's the biblical response to the world as we find it. Pursuit of the right beginning with right thinking about God because the whole thing went wrong because of wrong thinking about God, right? Being suspicious of God, not accepting that God is good, listening to the serpent. So right thinking about God that leads on to right thinking about our fellow creatures, both human and not, and from that flowing right actions. And biblically, to the extent that we follow this right path, and refuse to accept the world as we find it, Scripture says it is still possible to flourish in this world, and it gives us wonderful pictures of what that flourishing looks like. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, you ever read the book of Deuteronomy? With its marvelous pictures of what is possible for the Israelites if they live righteously in the land. And then, the terrible consequences of not doing it. But the point is, both options are available. Yeah? Nothing has been done in the world that makes one of those options impossible now. That's my main point. Now, of course, our ability actually to do that is deeply affected by what's going on around them, and we do need to be clear-headed about that. Uh, I mean, you could say that the modern secularist view is a kind of heretical version of this Christian view, and it says, without God, we can fix everything by Tuesday with technology and hard work, All right? Which is a, it's a kind of Christian idea, but it's just been taken like 10 meters off the wrong direction, right? But it is a kind of fundamentally Christian kind of view of the world, uh, but it has this overconfident aspect to it. Uh, our ability to do stuff, and a severe underestimation probably of the intransigence of evil in the world, that kind of over-optimistic idea. And there are theologies that are equally optimistic in a wrong way, I think. You may have heard the saying, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, which is cute, but untrue, it seems to me. Um, it's a saying attributed often to Edmund Burke, in the 18th century, but nobody really knows where it came from. The main point about it is I don't think it's entirely true. 
It seems to me that history is full of examples where evil has triumphed, even though good people have done a heck of a lot. Uh, it underestimates evil, essentially. It underestimates our actual capacity to deliver change in the world, even though we may be very committed to it. So certainly the Bible recognizes that larger reality. Uh, good people must certainly not do nothing, that's for sure. It's not a passive fatalistic view. But of course, there is a very strong idea that even the most righteous person may well be surrounded by a culture that's so perverse that not much can be achieved. And the great biblical picture of that early on is Noah. Right? Noah's a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked with God, but it didn't matter very much in terms of the global picture. Yes, it mattered for him and his family, and ultimately it mattered for creation. But in the immediate circumstances, it, it, didn't, it didn't seem to be going very well. Right? Um, so, uh, Noah lives well, but was it futile that Noah lived the way he did? No, not ultimately, actually. It only appeared that it was, but ultimately it wasn't, because why is this? Well, because God is God, the story is moving on, it comes to a happy ending, and so in the end, living in this way is utterly rational and coherent, but in the meantime, it may appear not to be. So, framing this in the whole story is, is important. Psalm 106, verse 3 Blessed are they who maintain justice and who constantly do what right, what is right. But you have all those laments, I'm saying, yes, oh God, but, but the world is a crappy place. How long, how long is it going to be, actually, before we make progress? So, to get the balance right here, biblical faith urges resistance to evil, but it does so with a clear-headed realism recognizing that the state of the world is greater than my capacity to change it, right? So we have to reckon both with activism but also realism. Secondly, the biblical response to evil and suffering involves patient endurance precisely because of all the issues I've just been talking about. If the right path immediately and obviously led us to the kingdom of God by Tuesday, there would be no need for biblical authors to keep on urging us to walk on it. Yes? There's a reason why they exhort us so much to this. Uh, the triumph of good over evil is not easily achieved, and in the long run it will happen, but not necessarily even locally right now. Um, that, an example, by the way, of this overconfident modernity that I ought to have mentioned a moment ago, it's one of my favorite ones. You may know the author Kurt Vonnegut, uh, who wrote a novel called The Sirens of Titan, and he says this, there is no reason why good cannot triumph as often as evil. The triumph of anything is a matter of organization. If there are such things as angels, I hope they are organized along the lines of the mafia, end quote. Well, that's, that's hopelessly naive, it, it seems to me. Good organization is better than bad organization, for sure. But the idea that you can rescue the world through good organization is about as credible as the idea that you can recognize it through good education, you can redeem it through good education. 
Not that education's a bad thing either. So in biblical faith, right living, being on the right path, being in the right relationship with God and with other people does not lead immediately necessarily to good ends to such an extent that people of faith can lose heart and despair. It's a wonderful thing that in our Bible we have text to help us with that. Have you noticed that? The realism of the lament psalms. Psalm 73, as for me, my foot had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right? The problem is the prosperity of the wicked calls in question everything else we've been saying. It doesn't fit. It's not right. It's something wrong with that. It's a problem, and it can lead people to doubt the truthfulness of the story. And Scripture recognizes that and gives you stories and psalms describing that, that we can inhabit as a way of thinking it through and uh, retrieving our confidence. Otherwise, it's all too easy to think, you know, what I do doesn't matter. The world's too big. Why should I get out of bed and actually do it? Confucius, interestingly, has something to say about this. He spoke about the human tendency to view humble actions only as small acts of goodness that are of no benefit and not to do them because they're small. But actually, in biblical faith, there's every reason to do small, futile actions. Not because in the present context they are anything other than futile, apparently, but because the whole story we're bound up in is going somewhere in which every fragment is gathered up into something that means something, right? So the Christian hope is the engine for an active response to the world. It's not an excuse for a passive one. Um, We're creatures of extremes, I think. It's all too often to swing from wild-eyed optimism into despair. This is my favorite cartoon on this point. Take a moment to read Mark and inwardly digest this important theological statement. The caption is, Bipolar Bear. Can you see that? Is it too small? Is it good? On second thought, I'll just stay in bed. Well, it's a temptation. We all know about it. And that's why so many of the Psalms urge us, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. I wait for the Lord, you will answer. There's a whole bunch of texts touching on this. So, the way of patient endurance. Uh, Thirdly, the biblical response to evil and suffering is the path of prayer. Uh, Very important because, of course, in the biblical view of the world, we are not designed or intended to walk through life alone, autonomously, as autonomous individuals. We are designed, we are created for relationships. At the heart of that is a right relationship with God, and that relationship involves talking with God. That seems fairly obvious when you say it out loud. And uh, there are many prayers, model prayers given for us in Scripture to model what that looks like across its entire domain, from lament through to celebration, praise, thanksgiving, and all sorts of other things in between. Uh, 
those prayers, as we've just seen, acknowledge and take into account the enduring and the patience and the waiting that is necessary as part of that uh, whole thing. But the Psalms also recognize that one of the things we have to pray about is our own, is our own involvement in evil and wickedness. It's not just out there. Right? So the Psalms remind us that the problem lies within, not just out there. And uh, you see some, a psalm like Psalm 51, which um, reminds us of the story of David, quite deliberately so, and gives us a model of prayer in that context. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. So these are all guides for the journey. So prayer is the third aspect. In many ways, you can sum all of what I've just said, those first three steps, you can sum it all up in this very well-known prayer by the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's pretty much bang on what I've just been saying, actually. It's a great summary of these first uh, three steps, the first three steps along the way. The fourth one is the path of compassion. I may not be able to defeat the evil forces currently waged, waging war against me. The very best I might be able to do is to hang on grimly in prayer and lament and do what's right anyway, walking with God on the way. But what I can certainly do is that I can offer friendship and help to those I meet along the way who are suffering. I can certainly do that. There's nothing preventing that, right? I can alleviate their suffering the best I can, even if I cannot necessarily change their total circumstances. And this kind of compassion is often attributed to God in Scripture. One of the recurring things that's said about God, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Right at the heart of God is this compassion. God who is good to all and has compassion on all that he has made. You recognize those sentiments, I'm sure. God who looks after people in dire straits, who looks after his people in the wilderness, in the New Testament, who goes after the one sheep out of the hundred, and so on. And the God who expects his people likewise to show compassion. So you can think of a passage like Exodus 22, verse 25 and following. If you lend money to one of my people among you is needy, do not be like a money lender, charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body, what else will he sleep in? And when he cries out to me, I will hear, says God, for I am compassionate. In other words, God being compassionate will betide us if we're not, which is a huge New Testament gospel theme, is it not, as well? It would be better if there were no needy people in the world, of course. But since there are, and since I may well not be able to do too much about the global circumstances creating the problem, at least 
at least I must treat them with compassion as it lies within my power. So that's part of the response to evil and suffering. It's not the only response. It's certainly an important part of the response. It's the kind of response that Job's friends fail to give him. Do you remember? Job's laughingly described comforters. You remember Job's comforters who offer no comfort at all. Uh, and Job's wife, curse God and die. That's her best shot at the whole kind of advice to Job thing. Well, it's not very compassionate. It's not what's needed. The path of compassion. And then the path of hope. Uh, this is the, the fifth stepping stone uh, in terms of this question, I think. I am to hope for relief from my own suffering. I am to hope for the victory of good over evil, to look forward to that. Beyond that, I am to dare to hope that what is bad in the world can somehow be turned to good in some remarkable cosmic currency exchange. Um, You remember the picture of that in the story of Joseph? He meets with his brothers at the end of the story. They look back on their lives, and he says to them very bluntly, you meant it's all for evil, but God meant it for good. Do you remember that? It's not that it wasn't evil, by the way. It really, really was. But nonetheless, in the midst of it, God was doing good stuff. That's what I mean about turning the bad to good in this currency exchange. So I am to dare to believe that that is the truth of the matter, that even the darkest moments in my life have meaning in some larger good plan, because God is of that character, and that's where the story is going. So while resisting and enduring and praying and being compassionate, I am to hope for a better world, the one described in the prophets, where nation will not take up sword against nation nor train for war anymore, Micah, uh, in which nothing will harm or destroy on all my holy mountain, Isaiah, great pictures of where the story is in fact going. This hope is not misplaced from a biblical point of view because the story of the Bible is a story of a God who continually does provide relief from evil, does continually defeat evil, does in fact continually turn evil to good. There's plenty of reason for this hope that in the end that's how things work out. And we're going to come back to this uh, theme of hope, give it some attention uh, next weekend. All of this adds up to an activist response. Notice that. All of this represents an active response to evil and suffering. That's a very important thing to say, particularly in a context nowadays where a very common complaint among those outside the church is the complaint that Christians are too otherworldly, not very concerned about the world we live in, anxious to leave, and don't contribute very much to the common good. Very common complaint. 
It doesn't matter whether it's justified or not, or whether it doesn't know enough about what it's talking about. All of that's true, but nonetheless, there it is. That's the perception, right? The perception is that we're in the waiting room, waiting for the train, and while we're doing that, we're playing cards. You know, we're not doing too much to, to really make things better. You find this complaint very prominent um, among many of the folks who are most concerned about the environment, for example. In, in that literature, this complaint uh, by people like Derek Jensen in the States, for example, who is a rather notable, uh, uh, what would you call him? Well, he's a kind of an anarchist, really, uh, but he's a kind of... Uh, green anarchist, you know. So he's very robust. He doesn't like Christians at all. And he basically says, you Christians, you know, you do not believe that this is really your home. You think your home is somewhere else, and you're helping to kill the planet. He's very blunt in his critique about the Christian church. And of course, that criticism is not without merit. It's not without grounds. I could, uh, on my, in my part of the world, on the American continent, I could quickly introduce you to a whole number of people who basically do adopt the kind of view of Christian faith that Derek Jensen is criticizing. So it's not a, it's not a straw man. But what I want to say about this is that even if it's true that some Bible readers take this view, I don't believe that Jerusalem advocates that kind of posture. Don't believe it for a minute. All of these biblical responses to evil and suffering that I've just reviewed are the responses of people who are convinced that evil and the suffering that derives from it, that both of those things are realities in the world in which we live, that this does often make the world very unpleasant and sometimes really awful, and yet... These same people, these same Jerusalem people are convinced that evil and suffering are at odds with a deeper and fundamental reality. So it's not dismissing that level of reality. It's simply saying, yeah, you're right, but the deeper reality is something else. The goodness that lies in the heart of God, the goodness of the world that God has created a world without evil and without consequent suffering beckoning us in the future, a world in which God and his creatures once again entirely share sacred space, all of that at the end of the road, and it's not interpreted biblically as a reason for staying in bed like our bipolar bear. It is interpreted in Scripture as the very reason why we ought to go out and respond to evil and suffering in these ways. It's the framework, it's the script, if you like, in which we find our own ability to relate to the world in a godly and righteous way because we believe, we ought to believe, Jerusalem believes that evil is not inevitable. Evil in its most fundamental sense is temporary. Evil is temporary, and God's people are to live in the belief that this is the case. Now, this is, once again, a very different response to evil and suffering than we find in other notable influential worldviews. And I don't have time to say very much about 
all the ways in which that's true, um, but if you're very interested in following that up, you can easily do that uh, in my book, Seriously Dangerous Religion, which uh, goes into a lot of this stuff in greater depth. Obviously, we're somewhat limited here by time and, and so on. Let me just take one example from the Greek tradition, since I am consciously building on Edwin Judge's talks. So let me just reinforce and elaborate upon a number of things that Edwin alluded to about how different this biblical worldview is from the Greco-Roman worldview. And then you can ask me in questions later if you want about other of the worldviews that we've been looking at. Um, so think about Plato. You remember from earlier, uh, the point of life in Plato's view is to rise via pure thought to the knowledge of reality, the world of the forms, thereby to escape embodiment and have your soul, your essential self, fly back to where it came from, right? That was the world worldview, uh, the cosmology, the anthropology of Plato. According to Plato, this may take some time. In the Phaedrus, for example, uh, perhaps 10,000 years before that happens, and so, in Plato's view, um, you are constantly reincarnated, and you eventually work your way up there. And if you're thinking you've seen that somewhere else before, you have. And you remember I said the Greeks were inheritors of the Eastern tradition, and this is a great example. Plato and Pythagoras both believed in reincarnation, in fact. So, they're Western, but they're Eastern. So, you have this notion of ongoing movement up through the chain of being, as in Hinduism and uh, so on. And it's not surprising, this goes back to my comment about packages, you will not be surprised that this has an effect on how Plato thinks we should live, how we should respond in particular to evil and suffering. Plato thought that human affairs in this world are really not worth taking very seriously. So he says this in a number of places, but certainly in his laws. If there's no God at work in the world to redeem it, as there is not in Plato's view, if there is no God with whom I may ally myself in seeking good in the world, making it a better place, as there is not in Plato, if there is no God to pray to about all that stuff, in the process of engaging with it, as there is not in Plato. Well, what do you think Plato is going to suggest we should do? Well, the answer is, of course, he's going to separate himself, he's going to ignore as much as he can, and he's going to focus on the serious business of becoming a philosopher and escaping the whole darn thing. That's what you would do if you believed what he believed. It's perfectly rational, it's not silly. Um, his belief system is wrong, and it leads him to a wrong view of what you ought to do, but it's not foolish. It's entirely rational. So in the Fido, another of Plato's works, one writer has said this about Plato in the Fido. The philosopher is described as the one who attempts to separate his soul from his body as much as he can 
And in effect, what this comes to is that he concentrates all his efforts on pure reasoning and pays as little attention as possible to the perceptions, desires, and emotions which arise only because he has a body. This is said to be practicing for death. So that's what you do if you're Plato. You practice for death. You detach yourself from your senses, inevitably, therefore, from anything else that might disturb your quest, and that certainly includes all the suffering in the world because that could be upsetting. So you don't. And we talked the other day just a little bit briefly about compassion being a really bad thing in this context, and you can see why that might be. So you don't pay attention uh, to the world, Uh, And another philosopher writing about this same thing said this, the morality which our true philosopher uh, lays claim to is thoroughly egocentric. To this one overriding ambition, escaping the wheel of existence, everything else is subordinate, not only the demands of his own body, but also all sympathy for others, all concern for justice, And in short, practically everything that we consider important to morality. It's a pretty large indictment, actually, of Plato and the entire Greco-Roman tradition. People like Plotinus then came along, and he elaborated on this and took it further. He's the founder of Neoplatonism. very much influential on people like Augustine, for example, and indeed the whole monastic tradition within Christianity goes quite a bit to these perspectives. And once again, Plotinus is very, very direct about the need to detach yourself in a very similar way uh, to the way in which a Buddhist would talk about detaching yourself in the same way in order to press onwards with your own personal goals. And so William Inge, from quite some time ago now, writing about Plotinus, observes in him this inclination, generally in Western philosophical thought, towards the contemplative and almost monastic ideal of the philosophic life, making ethics a study rather of how to live out of society than in it. So that's going to involve a passive response, right, to evil and suffering. And I'll finish with this. William Inge goes on to say, the call to seek and save that which was lost, the settled purpose to confront the world, this call is but faintly heard by philosophers of this type, and they leave such work to others. And the people they mainly left it to in that period of history were the Christians, of course, who were the only ones who cared enough to go and look on the rubbish heaps for abandoned children and to care for plague victims in Rome when everyone else fled and all the other things that the early Christians did that were so stupid with regard to this dominant philosophical system. So this is a great example, among other things, of the foolishness of the Karen Armstrong view that all religions basically say the same thing, to which I say, phooey, which is a very intellectual term. Uh, So, I will stop there. Tony, you're going to come and uh, 
Moderate. I think what we're doing now is we're picking up questions from the whole day, correct? Not just from that last set of observations, yeah. Yes. So, any question? Sure. Good. Thanks, Ian, very much. Um, I'm a bit of a dilemma. In one sense, the picture you paint here would be welcomed by about 99% of Christians in the Sydney district. But the ideas that you present, the sort of dismantling of the creation fall, mm. uh, would not be. And uh, in a sense, I feel like you've passed us a, uh, on the 5 8 next Saturday night in the uh, all back packers. Uh, <laughs> powering down on me and yeah. I would not dare stick my head up and, uh, right. and pursue that. Perhaps you might want to comment, not just now, but maybe throughout the uh, weekends. Well, on the All Blacks, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> I'm going to the game, though, next weekend, which is great. Um, yes, well, let me, just, let me just say a bit about that. <clears throat> I imagine that most people in the room today are Protestants, I'm just guessing. <clears throat> As Protestants, what we say is that we depend on Scripture alone as the final arbiter of what we should believe and how we should live. And I think we mean it. I don't think we're lying. And yet, it is rather astonishing how difficult we actually find it to bring settled traditional belief into that spotlight such that even when somebody says, you know, I don't think Scripture says that, there's still a kind of nervous reaction, right? So that, that's weird, if I may say. I'm not trying to be impolite. I just think that's a bit strange, right? There's a, a mismatch there. So from my point of view, I haven't dismantled the creation-fall-eschaton paradigm. I'm suggesting some adjustments to it so that it can do better justice to what the Bible appears actually to say. I may be wrong in that, for all I know. I don't believe I am. I believe I'm right. And the question before the rest of you is whether that is so. Right? Uh, nothing I have said departs from the creedal statements of the church, actually, interestingly enough. Nothing I have said is in contradiction to the Nicene Creed. Nothing I have said, I believe, is in contradiction to Scripture. I'm just suggesting that in certain respects, we haven't read particular parts of Scripture as well as we might. And we've got ourselves stuck in places where collateral damage arises because of that. And it would be good to review the situation to see whether, after all, we ought to adjust in these areas. So, from my point of view, it's a rather modest proposal, to be perfectly honest about it. Um, and, and I present it to you as a proposal. And, of course, as I say to my students, you absolutely shouldn't believe it just because I say it. That would be no improvement on any other kind of authority-driven kind of enterprise. The... The, the rightness of what I have to say has to be judged by going back and looking and thinking and pondering and discussing and saying, you know, 
what would be lost by the change? And even if there are certain things lost, what would be gained perhaps? And in the end, in a sense, that doesn't matter. The question is, is it true and right? Right? So from that point of view, I'm quite relaxed about it. And it's not just because I get back on a plane next week and fly away and don't have to deal with the pack bearing down. The reason I'm relaxed is because we ought to be accountable to Scripture and we ought to be forming reasoned, careful judgments on what is true and right and what the best ways of articulating the biblical story and the gospel in our time. I'm absolutely committed to that. Um, and therefore, in that sense, my conscience is free, even if it turns out, in the end, that some of what I've said is mistaken. Now, I wouldn't be saying it in public unless I didn't believe it was mistaken. Uh, but nonetheless, of course, you have to process this, and you have to think about it, and I just think it's a better way that accounts for more of the data and gives us into a better place in which it is then much more readily clear how we ought to live in line with biblical injunctions. So that's my answer to your question. Okay. Uh, I might add just a, a bit to that. Um, I also think that uh, the idea of transformation is important. I, I think all of my life I've taken Romans 12 really seriously. Uh, in other words, it's a bigger project. When Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, I've, I think I've always got that this is an infinite, uh, an, uh, I think what Edwards called the infinite enlargement. It's a project that can't stop. I'm being called to grasp God, and particularly God in Christ, and that this is going to, and as Paul said, to do that, I, I actually have to shake off the paradigms I've got in this world, which is a lifelong and rather rather wonderful task but the unlearning is as important as the learning to get into that you know in other words there's a really powerful theory in innovation that we have to fragment and disorder before we order and, and that's how people grow that's how people grow in in all cases and uh, certainly you haven't mentioned uh some of the verses that I know as a young Christian when I was reading them, I knew they, I didn't understand them because they didn't fit in the mm. simplistic uh, kind of sin-based gospel. But stuff like Colossians, when Paul says that the whole universe was created in Christ as an example, you, know, you just begin to see he had this vast picture we've got to grow up into. And um, It's a bit like <clears throat> serious scientific endeavour in general. <laughs> You begin with a paradigm, and you explore all the facts and interpret them in the light of the paradigm, and you may find, as you go along, the paradigm's not big enough. And then you have to adjust the paradigm. It's not wanton recklessness to do so. It's just what we would normally call common sense if applied to other parts of the world, right? And, and we live in this tension between the paradigm and, and the reading in this case, um, it's not very different from reading other, God's other book, reading creation. We read, we have paradigms. Over the course of time, certain paradigms have not proved to be sufficiently large or accurate. 
and by and large, we abandon them and we develop new ones. And I think scripture reading is like that. And I'm sure many of you, I have had the same experience as Tony, that you're given a paradigm to begin with and you have no reason to question it. And then you begin to read your Bible and, and certain things just don't quite fit. And our first instinct is to read past them onto the next verse because we're more comfortable there and just forget about it. But Eventually, we begin to develop a conscience a bit about that, perhaps, or for some other reason, we begin to think, well, maybe that's not the best way of doing it. So, I wonder if I took that seriously, what would happen over here? And um, this is certainly the shape of my life, and it's now my professional life and not just my personal life, and it's been a, a journey of trying to move towards better paradigms in continuity with previous ones. Um, that are still faithful to the whole notion of the orthodox Christian faith. But in all honesty, you know, quite a number of the things that many of us hold dear are fairly recent innovations in Christian history, to be frank. So, for example, it might surprise you to know this, but my view of creation as already being on a journey and unfolding towards an end is essentially what the church for Irenaeus believed way back around about 180 AD, one of the earliest church fathers who was very bothered by the Gnostics, who were essentially wild-eyed Platonists, who just took things way further, and who believed that all matter was evil, and, and so they were, it was Plato squared, right? And he was combating the Gnostics, and in order to do that, he had to present, for the first time ever, a worked-through view of the whole Bible as a coherent story in which the great themes of Christian faith over against Gnosticism were illuminated. And um, the kind of perspective I'm presenting to you basically on creation is Irenaean. It's not novel, it's actually deeply rooted. Whereas some of the other things that oftentimes are part of our local confessional paradigms are of much later vintage, Christian-wise. And um, some of them are good. I would suggest some of them are not quite so helpful, actually. And as we bring them all back to Scripture, which is what we should be doing, Sometimes we discover that wasn't the best way after all of saying that. We should say it this way. So. First of all, thank you, Ian. That was uh, wonderful, inspirational, insightful. Uh, quick question. How do we understand, reconcile ourselves with, and eventually communicate to the world, to people who the Bible's a foreign book, you know? Mm -hmm. That side to God that appears to be dark, to mm. some minds evil, mm. uh, with respect to uh, aspects of his uh, behavior or injunctions that you see in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, and we keep in mind that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. For instance, yeah. the order to the people of Israel to kill women and children and destroy yeah. property. And yeah. I've grappled with that all my life. Even the idea of eternal separation based on yeah. finite actions, that is, a human life. Yeah. Um, to me, it's agonizing. I still can't comprehend particularly the former. So what are your thoughts on that? I'd be really happy to get into those specific questions. But I want, first of all, to step back from that 
and to say, I think the way you put the question was exactly right. That is to say, we know the big story, and certain parts of it are really puzzling to us, and that's the nature of the question, right? Irenaeus was very good on this, by the way. His big problem with the Gnostics was, he said, what the Gnostics do, and he didn't use the jigsaw analogy, but I'm going to. He says, the Gnostics treat the biblical story like a jigsaw puzzle that you can take apart at will and put back together any way you want, and thereby they make a portrait of a fox. But he said, the right way to put the jigsaw together is to make sure you always come back to the portrait of the king. And the point he was making with that analogy was that our understanding of the parts are always, is always connected to our understanding of the whole thing. So knowing that Scripture says that God in his character does not change, when we come across passages and chapters that appear to be in conflict with that, we wrestle with those in that context and we look for coherent answers. Um, it is all but impossible in this climate that we live in, in the post-Christian West, to initiate a conversation about the gospel on the basis of those passages which Richard Dawkins has now given into everyone's hands as little weapons to throw at Christians because Dawkins is the archetypal proof texter. He simply plucks texts out and lines them up in a line and says, there you go then, religion is bad. Right? Good biologist, I believe. Not a great reader of the Bible. Um, so, it's futile engaging the world outside the church on that basis. We ourselves on the inside of the church still wrestle with these things, so how can we expect that to be the point of access or entry if the idea is we have to persuade every individual person on every intellectual issue that there's a tremendous answer they ought to expect before they decide to follow Christ, well, we're not going to be very successful, I think, in our persuasion. Uh, I think the problem has to be addressed in a different way. I mean, why do I read the Bible at all, really? Interesting question. In particular, why do I read the Old Testament at all? Because I'm not Jewish, so it's like reading somebody else's mail, really. So why would I do that? The answer is I only read it really because I'm already following Christ. And Christ, it appears, gave it to me to read, and I ought to do that as part of my discipleship. So engaging with these problems is an aspect of discipleship. To ask somebody else to do it who's not a disciple is kind of futile and I think a bit foolish. And it seems to me that the points of entry to other people to the Christian story have to be very different points of entry. And nowadays, I actually don't think it's even so much about argument. It's about quality of life. It's about friendship. It's about engagement, uh, being authentic, being real, being consistent, having a community of faith that other people look at like the early folks did and say, well, these folks are different in a good way. I know the media says otherwise, but I know these folks in my neighborhood, and actually they're pretty cool people. Um, and then later we can have our ongoing discussion about what to do with difficult passages. 
without letting them subvert the whole enterprise, because in all honesty, these are isolated instances within a whole sweep, right? Um, on the particular point you mentioned, there's a lot to be said about that, but I think one of the problems with the conquest narratives in Joshua and so on is that, uh, and, and this is not something people should know, they, they would have to be told this, um, a lot of the problem is not reading the genre of those stories correctly against their ancient background. Uh, because ancient conquest narratives, there's a way of writing an ancient conquest narrative, and it often involves exaggeration, hyperbole, and sweeping statements of that kind. But they're not meant to, in a pedantic way. And you may have noticed, even within Scripture itself, that uh, Joshua chapter 10 says, Joshua wiped out everything that breathed. But suspiciously, just a few chapters later, there's all sorts of other folks still running around in the story. So there's already a clue there. There's something about that globalized language there that we haven't quite got a hold of yet. And then attention to the ancient leaders in context helps to explain what that something is. Um, so there are local problems that can be addressed in local ways. What we mustn't do is allow it to subvert the entire thing, and we mustn't make it the point of engagement with the outside world because we're doomed to failure, actually, if we accept that invitation. It just doesn't work in my experience. So that's the beginning of a conversation. You understand it's not the end of it, but that's my best first shot. So, okay. I... Uh... I often think, just to your point about the broader narrative, that even reading the Bible itself, uh, I think the idea that we've got of presenting apologetically that the proposition is the Bible is the word of God, take the lot, it was ne- the Bible doesn't say that. It, it presents us with a single proposition that Christ rose from the dead. This is the utter turning point of everything. From that, all other things flow. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a mistake to... It's, it's very important that we see our scripture reading as an aspect of our discipleship rather than the other way around. I mean, again, the way I, I can't say, it's hard to remember, of course, whether you were taught something or whether you picked it up, but I seem to remember that all the reasons given to me why I should read the Bible had to do with objective, rational reasons why we should regard it as the Word of God objectively and independently and self-evidently. And they never seemed very good arguments at the time, and they seem even worse ones now. I think the real reason we read Scripture as Scripture is because we're already following Christ. Now, we may read the Gospel of Mark simply as historical literature, which is a very good thing to do and can be, can be done. Uh, there might be a reason for doing that, just to discover what an ancient writer had to say about first century Palestine and this interesting character, Jesus, and so on, and all of that. So you can certainly choose to read parts of Scripture, perhaps, for other reasons. 
But the reason I receive it as scripture is because I am already a disciple and I feel the imperative to do so. And it's interesting that although I blamed the early church earlier on for their giving in to allegorizing, at least the reason they were driven to allegorize was because against the grain, they knew they had to accept the Old Testament as scripture. They felt the tension They knew it was a problem, but when Marcion said, let's ditch the Old Testament because life will be easier, the early church says, no, we can't do that because our Lord himself gave us these scriptures for our use. So to their credit, even though it was incomprehensible to them as Greeks, or at least very difficult, they did not make that Marcionite move and the reason we don't, in spite of, in, with all the difficulties, I think the real reason we don't adopt that attitude is the same reason. Uh, I just think it's intrinsic to accepting the Lordship of Christ that we receive from his hand the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, and then we talk. But it's from the posture of faith, it's not from some allegedly objective viewpoint, as it were, right? So, I'd just like to ask a question that uh, I'm trying to draw a few threads from today together. Um, for example, you were talking about, uh, I think it was John chapter 9 and the, the yeah. healing of the blind man and was he blind because of his parents' sin or his own yeah. sin and so on. Um, my question is about uh, why God has created a world in which there are so many different religious alternatives. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm not looking so much for a theological answer to that, although partly I am, but sort of more of an existential answer in a way. Like just from, a, from your own perspective, from your own study of the scriptures, why, why would God have created a world that is potentially so confusing. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, you know, you've been talking about the different worldviews that you've looked at, mm-hmm. uh, including the ancient Near East, and that, that sort of multiplicity of approaches and mm-hmm. wondering why it would be that God would have allowed a world to unfold yeah. in which so many alternatives yeah. exist. Well, it's a really important question, and I think the answer one level back is that God has chosen to create this kind of world and not some other kind of world. And intrinsic to this kind of world is moral freedom, but also freedom of thought and inquiry, which is an aspect of moral freedom, I think. And that involves the opportunity to be wise or to be foolish, to get things right or get them wrong, to make mistakes and learn from them, and all of those things, which actually, in practice, we recognize as the very building blocks of how we become more mature, wise people. So the early theologians wrestled with this because it was clear to them that many aspects of what might be called bad in the world seems to be intrinsic to our ability to learn and progress and become less egocentric and so on and so forth. Suffering, of course, is part of that. 
those of us in the room who have endured serious levels of suffering and still remain in the faith will typically testify to all the things they learn from that experience that they don't think they could have learned otherwise. So there's already some debate in the Christian tradition about this, and I'm just developing that really and and asking further questions about it. Um, So I, I think it's got to do with this idea that creation is separate from God. It does have its own inbuilt freedoms, God allows it to be and to develop and does not micromanage. And God draws us into this conversation and says, come, let us reason together. Or Jesus tells a very puzzling story and waits to see who shows up afterwards to ask him questions about it. And you'll notice that even at the point when God becomes incarnate, and is therefore, in principle, most available to people, there is immense mystery surrounding Jesus' identity. He doesn't make it easy for people to see who he is. He tells puzzling stories to see who's serious, and he requires hard intellectual endeavor. He says really hard things that discourage people and make them leave which I think is designed, again, to sift out those who are serious. And so you don't get the impression that even in God's revelation, he's simply doing it in an overpowering way that doesn't allow choice. Those who have eyes to see, see. Those who have ears to hear, hear. Paul gets knocked off his donkey on the Damascus Road. What do the people round about him see? Not very much. So this idea that even in God's dealings with us for the good, where he's drawing us into relationship, that that he's actually providing bags of freedom there to make mistakes, to misperceive, later to realize you've been wrong and move on. I think we must read that as part of the plan of creation where God has created the world that's not perfect in the sense of yet arrived at where it's going, but is perfectly designed to achieve God's purposes in this particular zone of reality. Um, Now, of course, as we saw in the Psalms, sometimes it's quite difficult to read our particular circumstances in that light. But it is what we are urged to do that somehow, even in the moment when we doubt it, we must hold on to the idea that in the confusion, obscurity, and mistakes, God is at work anyway in drawing us onwards. So I see all of this aspect of it as part of the bigger why question. Why this kind of world? Why a world in which these things can happen, where the law of gravity is so good and yet it can cause pain? Why that kind of world? The ultimate answer is because this is the world that the good God designed to achieve his good purposes and to prepare us all for the next one. It's the basic answer, I think. Can I, uh, yeah. can I just pitch something in there because it's a great question. Um, so just to throw some ideas from another source, uh, one of my great mentors... Um, 
in the world of design, a friend of mine called Richard Buchanan, uh, helped me a lot with knowledge in a way that was behind your question. <laughs> How could God allow so many false answers along the way? He'd back off and say, he told me, well, there's knowledge, but more importantly, there's the knower and there's knowing. So what if God's primarily interested not in knowledge as a commodified, propositionally bounded space, but the, the knowing and the knower? And what if he wants us to become incredibly powerful knowers and knowing? Well, the way that will... I'm, I'm like an athlete going to the Olympic Games. I'm going to have to work at it. And I'm going to have to work at knowing, which will mean debate, choice, exploration, inquiry, uh, which will now build me into a wiser person. And it's almost the muscles I'm building on the way uh, as opposed to God wanting me to pass an exam and get 100%. And uh, I found that very powerful, um, that, that God's... There's a second order thing, which I don't know if this came out of an essay that I read and I, I've even forgot, so I couldn't say too much about it to you. But there's this idea that it's between the uncreated God and the created and, and therefore the modus operandi of being a creature versus the modus operandi of being God. They will never be the same. So the basic idea is that it appears God can declare something out of nothing, but we will never be able to do that. We will have to work at it all, including into eternity. So the, the hard work of life, be it physical, intellectual, is actually will always be our modus operandi. And to be Trinitarian agents, his interest is in developing us along that pathway. That's another way of looking at it. Just one footnote here that ties back to other things we've been uh, talking about, and that is that this is democratic knowing. So it's interesting just to think about the big package idea that we've been talking about. In um, religions like Hindus and Buddhism, the knowing is elitist. It's the knowing of the guru, the philosopher, and so on. And it's really only for the elite classes. In Plato, utterly elite. And indeed, only those elite get to run society. So as you know, Plato's Republic is a totalitarian state. It's run by those who are higher up the agenda. Consistent with everything else we've been saying this weekend, the fact that everyone's an image bearer and everyone's in equal territory, and that you can trust your senses, and everyone has, mostly all of them, right? Enough of them, typically. All of that conspires to make this a level playing field, as it were. Uh, and in fact, it turns out that the less elite in the Gospels are more likely to guess it because they have less baggage to begin with. So it's actually turning the whole thing upside down. It's those who see and touch and hear and take it all seriously and respond in the right way who become the disciples. The people you might expect to guess it don't. And that's a huge biblical theme all the way through, actually. So it's very important to grasp this, that, that knowledge, growth in accurate knowledge is part of the journey in Jerusalem, but it is everyone who is urged to find wisdom and, and so on in the book of Proverbs. It's not just the kings, the philosophers, and the gurus, as it were. Just to follow it up with um, 
Yes. Well, I mean, what Socrates meant by that nest of sayings is very interesting, you know. Um, I mean, as Plato reports him, he was a terrible elitist as well, right? Uh, and at one level, the unexamined life is not worth living. I mean, you can, you can see the point he's, he's getting at, and yet what he's really on about is the kind of philosophical contemplation he himself is very good at. So it's also a self-serving kind of thing. And of course, not everyone, not even most people would be capable of that. So if that's the bar, if that's what he meant by that, it is actually profoundly elitist. And it's not the way the Bible would put things. Because wisdom is either so unsearchable that no one can find it in Proverbs, or it's right there in front of your face and you can get it by observing how the ant lives. It's a, you know what I mean? It's, it's for everyone. It's to do with observation of God's world and listening to the wise elders. And these are things that everyone can do. So the entire Socratic Platonic thing is terribly elitist. And it's one of the biggest jokes, I think, when people say that Athens was the cradle of democracy. It was no such thing, and it could not possibly have been given the worldview. And only those people think it was the cradle of democracy who were like the people who had power in Athens and were happy enough to call that democracy because it left them in charge of everything. So, uh, but I mean, it was not in the slightest degree democratic, Athens. And uh, as I said earlier today or last evening, if you want to know where real democracy comes from, it comes from this Jerusalem vision that all of us being made in God's image have a stake, have a say, need to be respected, need to participate. Everyone, and politically and socially, that means that everyone has their own vine and fig tree to sit under, which is an image of stakeholding, it's participation, right? Uh, you hold land, the king can't take it away, as Ahab discovers in the Naboth story. I mean, there's all sorts of ramifications of this. So elitist, it is absolutely not. It's a story of ordinary folks told from the ground up. And as Tony said the other day, there's nothing like it in the ancient world. There probably was nothing like it in the ancient world. It's not just that we don't have it. It's a profoundly subversive story in those general respects as well, because about a bunch of slaves who escape from imperial control and build their counterculture in the hills of a nowhere land in the back of beyond, I mean, that's what it is, and who claim that God is with them, which is absurd, but true. Um, so, uh, again, the whole package. It's absolutely anti-elitist in almost every way you can possibly think, actually. Um, and by the way, that's the kind of wisdom that Paul's attacking. He's not against intelligence or rationality. When he's talking about the kind of wisdom you should oppose, it's this kind of Gnostic Greek wisdom with its elite hierarchies and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what he's really against. Yeah. I don't know if you want, there's a gentleman here. Who'd oh, like good. Oh, hi, welcome. Uh, I'm not sure if this will be a, a very easy question or a very hard one, but I'm, I'm hoping the answer will be a very short one. Um, <laughs> that, that my uh, life had a big change three years ago when I became a parent. And, and thinking about the comment you made earlier about 
waking up in the morning and, and feeling that, you know, if I get out of bed, I might contribute to the evil in the world. Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, that huge life-changing moment for me is now, I come to these things and I go, what on earth am I going to go home and tell my daughter? You know, because mm. I'm talking about um, Plato and Aristotle is probably a little ahead of her three-year-old brain at the moment. And so I'm wondering um, if there was a, a sense that my daughter should be waking up with in 10 years' time when she's going through high school and mm. all the hell that comes with that experience in life. What's that sense that ideally should, she should be feeling when she wakes up out, out in bed in the morning? I'm hoping that it's one of hope. Yeah. Um, but, but what uh, if you can put some word or, words around that, it, I guess I'm asking you to summarise your whole thing in a very short paragraph. Four children. Yes. <laughs> I don't think that's difficult. There is a God, one God, one true God, who is good, who is for us, who has given us a wonderful world to live in, which unfortunately is marked by terrible evil and suffering, and that our job in this world is to relate rightly in friendship to that God, to care for our neighbors, to look after the planet, and to hope for the better world to come, which is part of God's design, um, and was so from the beginning. And it's in that story, your daughter is an image bearer of God, which is the most colossally high status you could give anyone in this world. And she should think of herself that way and live that way and know the blessing of God in that way, even in what might well be very challenging circumstances from time to time. I mean, that, that's, to me, that's the gospel, that's the biblical story. Uh, with everything in its right place. I, I mean... I hope that helps. It is. And, and so, although this is more about probably your decisions than about your daughter's decisions, this implies a robust community of people around you who definitely believe the same things and who are going in the same direction, people to whom your daughter can complain about you when she's older, and you trust them to handle that well, uh, um, a community, which is what church is, ideally, and has to be because we can't do it by ourselves, because we are creatures of the group, we are susceptible to peer pressure, and we need to consciously create structure, structures where the peer pressure is going in the right direction, so that in our interactions with the rest of the world, we can re-enter that zone, re-find our place, settle back in, and you know, frankly, a lot of life of a parent nowadays is deprogramming children for the first 60 minutes after they come back through the door and retelling the story and reminding them of who they are. That's how we discovered it to be. Um, not that there's not an awful lot of good things to be learned at school, but of course along the way the children are picking up all sorts of very perverse and wrong ideas. And So that's part of it. And that's why I am not at all sympathetic really to the I don't need church kind of sentiment that we all too often get nowadays. Um, Every one of us is well aware of the deficiencies of church, but if we ever find a better one, we shouldn't join it because we'll ruin it. And so the question is not, is it ideally what I would like? 
The question is, is it doing enough good in my life and my children's lives to be helpful in this great walk that we're walking? Is it doing a sufficiently good job of that? Not an ideal job, a sufficiently good job. If it's not, well, that, that's a problem that has to be thought about. I, I'm not one of those who believes you should simply stick with the thing that's not working because the, the, the stakes are too high, particularly for your children. The stakes are just too high. So we made it our business to make sure we had a larger friendship group, larger church environment, that we constantly had really cool people through our home to dinner, that our children couldn't write off very easily, even when they thought we were crappy. Um, And it worked out okay, I have to say. I'm happy to say, very blessed to say, it worked out okay. No guarantees on that. I mean, there's no guarantee that perfect parenting will produce perfect children. I wish it were that easy, but it's not. Uh, But nonetheless, I think you're asking big picture, really good big picture questions, and I think that that's the kind of thing that you can tell your daughter, and that's the kind of world you need to help to create for your daughter, in my opinion. So, Uh, Just, um, well, we might uh, finish there. I'd like to finish with... uh, Just a couple of reflections. Um, First, in answer to your question, Dylan. One of the things that I've found most important in life is the power of language to create realities. Um, And the more modern theory of language is that language constructs realities. And uh, one of the, I think, very insightful philosophers there was uh, J.L. Austin and Maturano and they tried to create a grammar of of the way various language acts that's an important word, a language act um, works and they created the grammar of language acts, one of which I've carried with me everywhere. They say it is the, the key language act of the leader is declaration of a space For instance, a leader might declare breakdown is okay or or whatever. And I've often thought that if we have within us the inner resources of this kind of picture of the world and faith in it, uh, then out of that we can almost declare blessings. Um, I even do that in performance reviews. I even do that when I'm working with my staff. I feel it's my job as an older person to declare act and a blessing on people. You're really good at this, you know, and and I think there's so much of this resource as parents to create that optimism about the world, which I find quite practical. Um, And I've also been thinking a lot, uh, and in Gospel Conversations, we're going to move on in the latter half of the year to faith, the faith at work movement. Mm. Um, I'm very... I think it's going in great directions, but only baby steps, actually. And the problem is that if you go out into the work environment with the narrow gospel you've talked about, I think you screw everything up. Um, you just make, you make that opening up a distribution mechanism for a bad message. When you have to in, interact with an environment that's apparently hostile, you actually have to have deeper fundamentals to relate to um, than other people might have to have. And um, 
One of the things our organisation, Second Road, is very involved in is the, what we call the democratisation of strategy, um, which is the empowerment of frontline workers, the fundamental belief that most organisations and most systems in organisations are actually platonic and crush them. And that uh, we, however, treat them like the image of God. And sometimes we get clients who believe that. So the managing director of Argyle Diamonds, which is a magnificent organisation, I don't think, I, I don't know if he's a believer, I'm not sure, but he believed in what he called the upside down organisation. And we work to create systems that gave frontline workers discretion, authority, room to play mm -hmm. that were, could make a big impact on the company. Mm -hmm. And it was really, he fundamentally believed those frontline people had wisdom uh, that he, he and his managers and engineers would never have. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, famously we created a system that, I mean, in a diamond mine, the biggest technical threshold is yield. How many diamonds do you get out of the stuff? And the engineers were convinced that the upper threshold, the theoretical threshold had been reached, which was 93%. And a group of frontline workers without tertiary degrees said to themselves, that's crap. These guys, management doesn't know what they're doing. But the system gave them power to then form their own team. And they famously lifted yield by 4%, which you, you know, was $300 million to the bottom line uh, per annum. It's just a great story. Now, now, you know, as people don't know what was driving a lot of my belief in that, which is this whole world that everyone's in the image of God and um, this hierarchical suppression is actually not a good thing and never was. But unfortunately, too often, Christianity is associated with hierarchy in the minds of too many people. Yeah, and sometimes with justification and sometimes not. Yeah. That's the thing, right? So. Okay, thanks, everybody. Uh, perhaps, Gordon, we might, you might just ask that privately because I think uh, we've, we should give everyone room to uh, permission to go and we'll see a lot of you next Friday night. Thank you very much. <laughs>